Greetings, ladies and mandelgents, and welcome to this weekly roundup for Tales from Outer Space, taken from the YouTube videos TFOS 870 to TFOS 884. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 870. Story number one, Humans are Weird, Anxiety Attack, written by Betty Adams. Where did you end up storing the hydrocarbon reserves at your last station? Both sister inquired as she shifted the layers of the display that she was observing. Her companion was soaking in one of the sinks of the medical ward. He had dipped dangerously low on a particular mineral before one of the female humans had dragged him in, insisting that he was off color. Both sister had not noted a change in the outer membrane, but had learned to trust the human's risk assessment if nothing else. The humans dug a giant hole, put a storage tanks in them, and then backfilled the holes with the removed dirt. Idols in the shadows replied. A fairly standard solution, Fourth Sister replied. Making use of the insulating properties of dry land is a most efficient process. That wasn't the strange thing. Idols in the shadows went on. We had no excavation equipment at the time. Was there some unrequisition? she asked. Yes, there was, he said, but it was several months out, and the humans were in a hurry to get the hydrocarbons underground before the monsoons moved in. The electrical discharges would be a major problem, Fourth Sister admitted. How did they solve the problem? Well, we got a bunch of fresh rangers, so they printed out a bunch of shovels. Idols in the shadows stopped talking, as one of the many display screens along the wall began to flicker amber. What's that? he asked shifting curiously in the water towards the light. A medical alert, Fourth Sister replied. Low grade, it's not, uh... She stopped talking as the light shifted from amber to red. Looks like it is now, idols in the shallows observed. Who is that, and why aren't the readouts in a readable format? The humans value their privacy in medical matters, Fourth Sister said as she quickly gathered her kit. I must leave you here. Please do not touch anything. Idols in shallows gave a hum of agreement and slipped back under the surface as she left the office at a brisk skip. It took her some time to reach the human's location on the other side of the base. The middle-aged woman was bent over on top of one of the power generators. First mechanic, Fourth Sister called out, I'm here to tend to your medical needs. My what now? The woman asked, glancing up sharply at the medic. Fourth sister hesitated and considered the situation. The woman's face was creased with stress indicators, and her shoulders were hunched defensively. However, she did seem genuinely perplexed, and as remote as the possibility was that the equipment might be malfunctioning, she held up the display and showed the elevated hormone levels to the human. Why are you even monitoring those? First mechanic demanded. For the study from the Centauri University, Fourth sister explained, her antennae curling up in surprise. She thought Bose Mechanic had consented to the study with the rest of the base. The human heaved a sigh and reached her gloved hand up to rub across her face. The dirty, protective surface left smears of conductive gel on the skin and Fourth sister couldn't quite hide her wince. Forgot about that, scrap it. The human cursed softly. Guess I better tell you about it. About what? Fourth sister asked with a confused flick of her frill. The human sighed again and went back to her task. 
I have a little genetic oddity, she explained. It makes my mineral content fluctuate unexpectedly. I have a genetic oddity, she explained. It makes my mineral content fluctuate unexpectedly. I have a therapy for it, but it's too close to some pretty important gene markers to turn it off or mess with it much at all. I'm usually pretty stable, but every so often some environmental thing knocks my mineral content sideways, and I get a little distracted. Why didn't you report this imbalance before your hormones were affected? Old sister asked. The human shrugged. I have an appointment set up to get it rebalanced, she said. There was no reason to bother you. You have enough to do with the study. Be that as it may, false sister said. You need to come back to the medical ward with... No, first mechanic stated abruptly. Pardon me? False sister said, coding her antenna back in her front. Look, false, first mechanic said. I know my limits. I might be having a tough go at it right now, but I'm perfectly capable of working through it. It is a series of medical conditions that every line of data I have says can lead to death, Both sister stated. I'm not gonna snap, first mechanic growled. It's just a few days. Both sister pulled up the list of symptoms that was attached to first mechanic's database in a minor subfolder. Anxiety attacks, panic attacks, temporary disruption to your central fluid pump, Both sister demanded. These are hardy, look! The human snapped as she rose from her work and shut the lid with more force than was strictly necessary. I can be miserable trapped in my quarters, or I can be miserable and productive at work. Both sister hesitated. The logic was very sound. Humans were notorious for the degradation of their mental state under periods of inactivity. I will be monitoring your biometrics closely, Both sister said. You do that, Moon Pie. First mechanic replied as she shouldered her work bag and proceeded to the next junction. Both sister tilted her triangular head to look after her in confusion as she left. When the human rounded the corner, the shittar turned and walked back to the medical bay. Idols in the shadows were circling the bottom of the sink, clearly in deep thought. She resumed her place and had began working for some time, when he finally rose to the surface and angled his appendages at the wall of observational charts. It is still reading in the danger zone, he observed. The human has chosen to work through the issue, both sister informed him. Why? Idols in the shadows asked. Feel free to propose a theory of your own, both sister said and bent over her work. End of story. Story number two. Beyond Life to Yamba, We'll Kill You Wholesale, written by Because I Said So Too. Are you worried about passing away peacefully in the night from natural causes and being gone for good? Worry no more. Beyond Life to Yen personal plan guaranteeing your immortality. Don't worry about signing anything. Our painted and smart copy TM has been tracking your eye movements and micro-expressions, and we have subtracted the credits from your account. Congratulations on your purchase. Ask us about our family plans today. But wait, there's more. Perhaps you are saddened by the loss of an ancestor, a friend, or pet immortal TM you admire. One whose consciousness was lost. With a purchase of Beyond Life TM personal plan, you can include one pre-mortal TM as well. 
Just mouth their full name and the date of birth, and utilizing our patent and backcast TM technology, the message below will be sent back in time to alert the pre-immortal TM you selected. Congratulations! You have been selected as part of the Beyond Life TM personal plan. You are probably wondering what this means, and we're excited to tell you. But first, a brief history lesson about the discovery that made this gift and our company possible. On March 17th, 2037, the world's population, already at unsustainable levels, suddenly jumped exponentially. But uh, no one noticed, because the new arrivals weren't new at all. They weren't here in any conventional sense. Physicists and computer scientists attempting to digitize consciousnesses discovered existing patterns in the electromagnetic signals and cosmic background radiation all around us. The software identified patterns as conscious minds and researchers devised a way to communicate with the immaterial entities that they had discovered. They learned that if the conditions were right, self-aware patterns of information could be copied into the very fabric of reality. Call it a spirit, a soul, whatever you like. The dead lived on the conscious data packet influx, embedded in the quantum foam all around us. The living were a minority, and the dead had been here all along. Contact had been made, and humanity was suddenly faced with an astonishing fact that we were not alone. We are minnows swimming on the surface of the sea of the dead, and subordinates living on the outskirts of a thriving necropolis. In a metaphorical sense, the auditorium lights had come on, and the living got a good look at the audience. It was huge, and it wasn't terribly interested in the living, strutting and fretting their brief hour upon the stage. While the dead took it in stride, for the much smaller community of the living, the sociological consequences were far-reaching. The first few years were understandably chaotic. Government agencies and census bureaus had a lot of information to process, and judicial systems had to dramatically reevaluate the concept of murder. Additionally, society at large had to cope with the tragic mass exodus, as a large percentage of the population of the living, fascinated by this little understood discovery, self-terminated, and the vast majority of them were never heard from again. Because, sadly, it was immortality with conditions, and not all who died remained. It was the way you died that mattered. Only those traumatized by their passing returned. Somehow, shock, pain, and horror were the things that implanted souls upon the material plane. Peaceful deaths. Those that died in the night, those minds had peace, fragmented, and drifted away, and their information was lost. This discovery, once identified, was verified in laboratories around the world. When the passing was peaceful, minds and memories broke apart like a foam on a wave. Nothing remained of the pattern. A peaceful death was a true death. That's where we come in, and why we're reaching out to you with this message. If you are reading this now, you originally died peacefully and your consciousness was lost. Thankfully, someone in the future wants to meet you, and this is your notification that you have been chosen to be an unwilling participant of Beyond Life, TM. Personal plan. 
In the near future, you will be executed in a novel and creative way. One specifically tailored to maximize the amount of horror, agony, and psychological trauma that you will experience, thus guaranteeing your immortality. Utilizing our patented backcast TM messaging technology, we will send whispered commands back in time to susceptible psychotic individual in your area who will soon be excited to make your acquaintance. Also, while we're legally obliged to notify you that you have been selected as an unwilling participant, we encourage you to treat this as an enjoyable fiction and for you to go about your everyday routine as normal. Beyond Life TM thanks you for your participation. We will see you soon. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 871 Story number one. Females, written by the Mad Crafter. The Yandari Death Squad was holding the rise. Bolts of electrostatic charges popping gangly hot shoulders like water balloons. A few ripping those unlucky enough to get within arm's reach, limb from limb. And then, a splash of gore, viscera spraying. The dropship that had flattened the death squad, dropping assault ramps as bipedal armored soldiers poured out without hesitation. Slug throwers barked and flashed. One carrying a plasma thrower charged to the rim of the trench and setting it and its inhabitants ablaze with the power of a star. An armored figure raised a sword, the blade vibrating so fast that it distorted the air around it. Attack! the figure cried in a modulated voice. Thirteen. There were only thirteen of them, and in less than thirty ticks had killed more than four times their number. It was a massacre, like watching gods descend upon a battle. The record drone tracks one armored figure as it cut bloody swath through the Yandari lines. Slug thrower blazing, running out of ammo, and then figures switching to a sidearm and combat knife. The change in weaponry didn't hamper the living god. It only made things bloodier and more personal as the fallen got to look into the glowing optics of their killer. A Yandari got a lucky shot, blowing a chunk out of the figure's midsection as it guts another Yandari. The cold, green optics turned to look at the offender, the pistol in its hand blowing a hole through the head of the gutted victim without even looking as it advances on its new prey. A second shot deflects off its armor, leaving it glowing with heat. A third shot goes wide. A fourth. The figure raises its sidearm and aims. A fifth panicked shot clips the armored helm and spins it. Pause replay, a voice says in the recording freezes. Groans and cries of protest coming from the shadows. What are we seeing? The voice says. A spotlight shining down to show the small form of the educator standing under the massive vid screen. Anyone? A green light flashed in the dark of the audience. Speak, the instructor said. Shock assault. A mechanical translator voice droned over the clicks and chitters of one of the insectoid students. Bipedal species, likely mammalian based on morphology. Ability to ignore catastrophic bodily damage indicates the use of combat stims and pain blockers. Assessment, Talvara security forces, Gethic kill team, Halondara regulars, or Jakar freebooters. The educator nodded. 
Astute, Cadet 5583, the HK said. Tell me the commonality between your assessed combatants. There was a low drone from the dock before the mechanical voice spoke again over the clanking. All aforementioned species employ the use of combat drugs to enhance combat efficiency. The lack of powered armor narrows the range farther. The combatants are employing kinetic weapons rather than energy-based ones, further narrowing the candidates to the aforementioned list. The educator nodded. You're neglecting a factor in your assessment, 5583, the educator says, pacing beneath the screen, frozen at the armored figure in mid-spin from the weapon impact. There is a bias in your calculation. Reassess. There was a longer drone before a different green light flashed. Cadet 5583 assumed the combatants were all male, based off the species they listed. A voice from the shadow said... The educator snapped his fingers and pointed into the dark. Very good, he said, before gesturing up to the screen and the lights dimming again. The recording resumed, the armored figure's head snapped back and its helm flying off. A tanned, narrow face with full lips and dark, short hair snarled, grabbing the Yandari and lifting it up by the chest armor. The wound on the warrior's face still smoldering on the high cheekbone, along with the midsection as they stabbed the Yandari repeatedly through the side of the neck. A female, the educator said, the video pausing just after the figure dropped their kill, face covered in blood and still smoldering flesh. 5583, assess. Human female, Terran drop marines. Based on the insignia and combat protocol, most likely six marine raiders, the translator droned. A laugh erupted from another part of the shadows. Something funny, the educator asked, just before another green light flicked on. Females aren't capable of such things, the voice rumbled beneath the translator. I came here to learn, not be shown fiction. The shadows murmured. Gadet Gaval, correct? The educator asked. Yes, the voice rumbled. Cadet, your species is still new to the Union, so I'll ignore your ignorance for the time being in favor of making this a teachable moment. The educator looked into the shadows. Cadet Carter, would you oblige us? The educator asked to the shadows. Yes, sir, came a soft voice as the sound of feet rapidly stomping on the ground began to echo. A moment later... A second spotlight illuminated the form of a young human woman. Not even two meters tall, dark skin and curly haired. She was easily one of the smallest cadets in the class. She stood at attention as the rumbling laughter erupted again. You expect me to believe that this is capable of what you just showed us? Gaval growled from the shadows. Why don't you fuck around and find out? Carter said. Eyes locked on the candidate's green light, making the class thump faster and louder. That is a Terran combat challenge, the educator said. It is my understanding your people can't refuse one. Isn't that right, Cadet Gaval? Steps thumped against the stairs as the reptilian centaur-like Gaval descended before being highlighted by his own spotlight. Damn, Koffer laughed. Looks like your species feeds their bitches Wheaties. There wasn't even a chance for the instructor to speak before Gaval swung, catching Carter with a fist as big as her head and sending her spinning into the dark as the room went quiet. 
A female is never equal to a male, Cabal said triumphantly, and then the laughing started from the dark. The lights turned on, showing Carter already hefting her to her feet while wiping blood from her mouth and eyebrows. Now, I'm gonna enjoy beating your ass, she said before cocking her head curiously. By the way, is it on the back end, that thing you keep talking out of? Gaval roared and charged, Carter calmly rolling her neck and shoulders to crack the bones. And then, the beating began. It happened so fast, it was hard for anyone to track. The massive Gaval galloping towards Carter and swinging his anvil-sized fist at her again. Suddenly, she was being thrown by it. She was clinging to it, arms and legs wrapped around the wrist as wide as her own torso. Gaval recoiled, shaking his arm. Carter scrambled up his arm and onto his shoulders, wrapping her legs around his neck as she started punching into the side of Gaval's neck. As you can see, the educator spoke as the brawl went on. The human female, woman, Carter snarled as Gaval grabbed her and she kicked at his chin and throat. Apologies, the educator said calmly. Take note of this, class. Human, and forgive me for this, Carter. Females are bore being called females. They prefer to be called the designation of woman. And to not use that is to take your own life into your own hands. Gaval slammed Carter to the ground in a ham-fisted bomb, knocking wind out of her and buying him a second to rub and bat at the numerous bruises and bleeding wounds at his neck and shoulders. Human women are more nimble than their male counterparts, the educator said as Carter hopped up, split blood, and charged at the aiding Gaval. They have higher pain tolerance. The physiology allows for greater dexterous combat over males which favor endurance and strength. Carter leapt, her feet driving into Gaval's throat before grabbing his arm and using it to flip her falling form over onto his back in a smooth, almost effortless motion. Her boots slamming down into the point where Gaval's upright torso met his centaur-like back off and dropping the massive cadet to the floor. Allow this to be a lesson, the educator said, as Carter wrenched Gaval's arm sideways and stepped on the gills on his forehead. Never allow the assumption of the combatant's sex to be a determining factor in your combat projections. Submit, Carter growled, pushing her foot down on Gaval's gills and pulling his arms back. Never to a female, Gaval croaked. Cadet Carver will kill Cadet Gaval in exactly 44.68 seconds, the translator droned. I am well aware, 5583, the educator said. Carter wrenched harder. She could feel things tearing and popping in Gaval's arm as she pressed her foot down hard on the gills. Submit! The massive form of Gaval growled and choked. Then something snapped. His arm in Carter's hands went limp and Gaval let out a yell. Without pause, Carter flipped the yowling Gaval over and wrenched at the opposite arm, planting her boot on his gills again. You're running out of limbs and the educator isn't going to save you, she said, her voice soft. Admit, tap out, surrender. A moment later, as the tearing sounds began again, Gaval cried out, I submit. The lights went dark and the recording resumed. The sound elevated to drone out Gaval's whimpers of agony. 
The drone tracks the human woman as she rampages through a trench, engaging in hand-to-hand combat before zooming out and displaying the entire platoon's movements and calculating the overall kills as, one by one, the platoon's markers wink out as they die. This single, entirely female unit of Terran Drop Marines inflicted a casualty rate of 35,000% from landing until termination. These 13 Terran Marines killed 4,550 Yandari, and two of the Marines survived. Carter was walking with the medics lifting Gaval out of the theater. Cadet Carter, who was that Marine we saw get her helmet blown off? The educator asked. My grandmother, Carter said, without looking back. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 872. Story number one. No fury greater. Written by Barsoom Israel. Horror, the council called it. Unmitigated cruelty and perversion. Dubuck stifled a laugh. Though his disdain for what the council thought was writ on his face. It was only when the ambassador for the Creville, an avian race, newly assigned a council seat, had said, We will stop this practice by force if necessary. Did Tobak's face harden? Do not threaten us, carrion eater! Tobak snarled in response to the threat. None here in this council, you least of all, have the military might to uphold that threat. Tobak spun at his heel, staring at all the ambassadors in the face as he continued. And whom amongst you no longer feed? Which of you no longer eat meat? Here, he pointed to the Crevillian. You, at least, I know still eat your favored invertebrates alive. So do not think to condescend to us our eating habits. The Creville ambassador jumped to his feet and raged. Our food is not sentient. What you do is unacceptable. Tobak could not hold back the barking off this time. Sentient! I would say the humans barely meet that criteria. But they do meet it, the Kruvel snapped, pointing at Tobak. And just because they do not travel the stars, this does not give you the right to steal the hatchlings, to consume their flesh while they're still alive. You are a monster. Tobak's lips drew back from his fangs and a snarl. Never before have our race tasted flesh so sweet. The pups, uh, sorry, the children they breed are so tender, so tasty that words fail to describe. And their fear has rubbed their flesh from them. Their fear bastes the meat in ways that you cannot imagine. Here, a trail of drew fell from Tobex's canine jaws and hit the floor. His eyes had rolled back in his head at the mere memory of his last feast. A small, curly-haired female of eight summers. Oh, how she screamed as he gnawed morsel after morsel from her bones. Seeming to realize that he was still before the council, he snapped out of his daydream. Anyway, he continued gruffly, we will not stop. We will not allow others to stop us. Here he paused for effect. And we will destroy any who attempt to hinder us in any way. Tobak began to leave the assembly. 
dramatically looking back at the Crevillian as he strode for the exit, when a soft voice stopped him. Tobak, please grace us with your presence for a few moments more. You may need to hear this. Tobak's heckles rose. Of all the council, the tree people of Madar Five were the worst. Always, with the peace will find a way, and uh, no one's truly alone garbage that they spewed. It was enough to make him willing to gnaw his own leg off to get away from them. But as she was a council leader, Tobuk knew his diplomatic duty and stopped his aggress, and turned to face the council once again. This matter is already, as we speak, rectifying itself, she said sweetly, her voice like droplets on a pond. We decided to help the humans navigate the stars, and hope to assign them a seat on this very council. The council erupted in chaos. Never before had any race of sentients been helped to leave their world. It was unheard of. Tobak snarled in fury. My, what right! We were not made aware of the council voting on this matter. Our voice had not a right to be heard. Other council members also added to the chorus. No one, it seemed, was aware of this. The Medarian held up her hand for silence, and as soon as she got it, she continued. The council did not vote on this matter because we were afraid the council may not act on it. She said softly, this action was taken by my people, and my people only. We contacted the humans of planet Earth and informed them of what was happening to their young. Dobek's jaws dropped open in stunned silence. It appears they were well aware that their children were being taken, and they did not know by whom or why, she continued. When we showed them the pictograph videos of Ambassador Tobak's race and their uh, eating habits, her soft voice trailed off. It appears, she said, even softer than before, so that the council members had to increase the volume at the podiums. Humans form a very deep bond with the young, deeper than even my race does. Here she stood to a full eight feet of height, and pointed her thin, nimble fingers at Tobuk in damnation. And you, Tobuk, Moo and your race flaunted your perversion, your pompous air of superiority in front of us. Of us! Her voice needed no artificial increase to be heard now. She was furious. No one in the council had ever seen or even heard of a Mandarian losing their temper, much less one raging at a fellow council member like she was doing now. If you dared kill the younglings of a sentient species, that would be abhorrable enough. But to strip the flesh from the living, screaming bodies. Do you think that we, of all people, would allow this? Did you? She roared, her voice like thunder in the enclosed room. She sat back down, glaring at Turbeck. We gave the humans the technology we have. All of it, she said, trying to regain her composure. But that would not be fast enough for what the humans asked of us. So we gave them three shuttles, each big enough to hold one hundred humans. Tobak stood as stone. He was unsure just what was happening. The Medarian managed to give Tobak a shaky smile. 
Do you want to know what the humans did with the pictograph videos? They dispersed them across their entire world. Every human eye saw what you and your people did. Their military asked for volunteers for a suicide mission, as they called it. They asked for 300 soldiers. In less than two minutes, they had over 8,000. Here, she stopped and let that sink in a bit. Two minutes, 8,000 volunteers. I heard many, many more tried, but they stopped accepting volunteers after two minutes. Tobak snarled. Do you think that this makes any difference? We will take that human world and turn it into our own personal larder. In response, the Miradarian just gave a soft laugh. Oh, Tobak, she said, shaking her head softly. You will do no such thing. The humans are under our protection. Not that they need it, it seems. Do you know what is transpiring on your home world as we speak? Tobek's tail began to droop. What exactly was going on here? Smiling, the Medarian activated the view screen. The 300 human volunteers landed on your home world over an hour ago. We tried to stop them, to beg them not to throw away their lives. But they were insistent on sending a message to your people. Her eyes drifted to the view screen above her which was broadcasting the news from Tobek's home world. Consider the message sent. Tobek stared at the screen. Videos of a large bipedal human warriors cycling their weapons, laying low anything that dared cross their vision. What froze his blood is that the humans had somehow been able to incapacitate his people. He saw one of his warriors running to engage the human, who simply blew in a short metal rod that was in his mouth. And Tobik watched as his warrior dropped his weapon, slammed his claws into his ears, and fell to his knees. The human simply walked up to it, still blowing in that strange device, kicked him over, and stomped on his head until the twitching stopped. What is this? Tobik said, stunned. He whirled on the Medarian, roaring, This is your doing! In reply, she simply took a small metal rod from the folds of her robe. This is a souvenir from Earth. I don't think you'll like it. It's called a dog whistle. And saying that, she put the chew to her lips and blew. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 873 Story number one, Emperor's Grace, written by Bar Sum Israel. Selector Bodell was shaking under his green robes. He stood in front of a full council, something normally reserved for high matters of the Empire. Being just a common selector, he never had to face anything like this before. Arrayed in a half circle around him, the Empiric Council sat each member seated in an ornate chair with multiple view screens and data pads within easy reach. The council all wore white robes, denoting their purity. As Selector Badal faced them, they barely paid him any heed. Yet, after a few moments of preparation, the head of the council, Ambassador Flock, addressed the selector. Do you know why we summoned you here? Are you aware of the situation? 
casting his eyes downward as not to offend the council members. Bedell replied, Yes, Ambassador. There was a slight hesitation, and then the Ambassador said words that have never been uttered before in the chamber. You will not be punished for any words that you say today. You are to be forthright and complete in every statement. Do not try and placate or soften your words to us. You may even... You may even insult the Empire, if you wish, with no retribution. Under his robes, Bedell's protective scales switched from a standard green to a slight yellowish tint. The thought of even muttering the slightest criticism of the Empire filled him with fear. He dared glance at the council, and their face scales seemed to flash with a reddish hue. Anger. They were furious, and thought a mere selector being able to speak his mind freely, with no consequences. But these were dire times, and to the council's credit, they were able to maintain their composure. Do you understand, Selector? The only punishment dealt out today is if you try and hide information of this issue in any way. Bedell swallowed hard. He replied, Yes, Ambassador. Ambassador Fullock sat back at his chair. Very well, Selector. You have been summoned to discuss the incident aboard the Emperor's Grace Selection Vehicle under the command of High Seer Verdict. You were the officer selector on that ship, is that correct? Casting his eyes downward again, Bedell replied, Yes, Ambassador, but I stress all actions and decisions relating to this incident were under the direct orders of Overseer Verbict. The Ambassador interrupted, Hi, Overseer Verbict, Collector. Bedell's scales flashed red. Ambassador, Verbict does not deserve the title of Overseer, much less that of High Overseer. Hisses filled the room as scales splashed red. Each council member had leapt from their seats except the ambassador. How dare this lowly selector insult his imperiors? They should have Bedell ripped apart, scale by scale, for such an affront. Silence! roared the ambassador Philak. Slowly, the council scales returned to green as they returned to their seats. Selector Bedell was shaking, knowing what he said was sure death sentence. He was grateful his robe said his scales. He was sure that he would be embarrassed at how yellow they would be. Selector Bedell, the ambassador continued, his voice back to normal volume. I already assured you that you would be free to speak as you wish. No harm will come to you no matter what you say in this council. Ambassador Fuller glanced at the other council members. Something that the rest of you should heed well, as no such promise was made to you. If you interrupt again, you will be removed. His voice left no doubt that he was not talking about being removed from the room. They would be removed permanently. Shocked silence greeted the statement. Never before had any ambassador threatened other council members this way. Even Selector Bedell was stunned. This wasn't heard of. The ambassador continued, The critical nature of this meeting is more important than protocols and procedures. This meeting is to, if my fears are founded, to protect the Empire itself. 
I will not have pomp. I will not have ceremony. But I will, by the emperor, have the truth. Ambassador Fulak looked back at the selector, who was obviously shaking where he stood. Selector Badal, I ask you gather yourself and your courage to uphold your duty to the empire. I ask you for the truth, the unfiltered, honest to the emperor, truth. You must do this. Swallowing hard, gathering his courage and preparing himself to do his duty, Selector Bodell's scales slowly turned blue. The ambassador smiled upon noticing the change to the tint around Bodell's eye scales. Bodell was determined. He would do his duty for the Empire. Now, Selector Bodell, begin with your selection choice and give a full report from there. Bodell gave a curt nod of his head, set his jaw and started his report. As the council is aware, the Empire tests each new subject species we encounter as to where they'll best fit when assimilated into our ranks. The Devi race was perfect for farming and labor. The Tavis were nothing better than slaves, while the ferocious Vantus were a good fit for our military. While searching for more planets to add to our great empire, we picked up signals from the third planet in the Sol system. It had a race that called themselves humans. Humans were large. They stood a talon and a claw above even our largest warriors. They were in the simple stages of space travel, sending probes to other planets and such. They seemed to be no threat. Every eye trained on Badal as he spoke. Badal used his datapad to relay images from the Emperor's Grace to the Council's view screens. In my selection process, I discovered that the species seemed to be fighters. As you see on your screen, here is a conflict we watched for the selection process. On each screen flashed an image of human warriors fighting each other. It was a small skirmish with only five humans to each side. But the battle was intense. Covered head to toe in protective gear, the warriors ran, ducked, and moved with incredible swiftness at each other. Seemingly careless to their own mortality, they fought like the Emperor was watching them. They are fast and large, aren't they? Councilmember Devant said to no one particular. Selector Badal nodded earnestly in agreement. Exactly, Councilmember, he hissed excitedly. Of all the species brought into the folds of the Empire, fighters are the rarest. So I was excited to think that we would soon add a whole race of great warriors to uphold and promote the glory of the Emperor. Medal made a few more commands to his datapad, and the view screen changed. As you see, council members, he began, a data analysis of their weapons showed no threat. Simple projectile weapons that fired at a velocity would not even crack the hardened scales of our elite troops. Verbict ordered the standard capture protocols and deemed five of these trained human warriors would be enough to test their metal against our elite troops. Not a single scale changed when Selector Badal did not use the normal honorifics when mentioning High Overseer Verbict. All council members were staring rapidly at the view screens. When the five were data tethered aboard the ship, we followed the standard protocols. Using linguistic translators, we informed them that they were to engage in battle against five of our fighters, 
elite warriors against elite warriors. How they fought and died would determine how their race would be accepted into the Empire. Fight well, and you would become a warrior caste. Fight poorly, and you'd be servants to the Empire as they saw fit. Refuse to fight, and become slaves. As usual, they cried at misunderstanding. They begged and pleaded for their freedom. They even attempted to offer compensation to be let loose. In most species, this is the case. Selector Bardal scratched at his data pad again, and the view screen changed to see the humans huddling together, talking quietly amongst themselves. As you see, Bardal explained, the humans took less time than most species to accept their fate. We gave them two cycles to prepare for the battle, but after twelve of their hours, they seemed to understand that deaths were imminent. But it looked as though they intended to fight. This gave us hope. Here, Badal hesitated. He slowly entered commands on his datapad and said, This is all where it went wrong. I want you to listen to this part right here. Over the loudspeakers in the room, the translation protocols changed the uncouth, brutish language the humans used into the civilized tongue of the Empire. The humans were all talking, discussing what they could do when one human raised a rifle and said, Like, this is going to do anything to them. What are we going to do? Another human looked at him and said, Go for their eyes. The loudspeaker quieted. The council members looked at each other, confused. Ambassador Felak addressed the room. I am not certain of the importance of this. Why did you single this out? What am I missing? Shaking where he stood, Bedell cast his eyes down once again to reveal that a council member may have less knowledge than a lowly selector. But Bedell was too far into this to stop now. Ambassador, the humans were aware their weapons would not be effective against our warriors' hardened scales. They understood this without ever seeing us. How could they have known this? This alarmed me greatly, and I formed verdict that we should cancel the exercise immediately. We were dealing with a race that may have psychic abilities, could read minds, predict the future, or a whole slew of other possibilities. But verdict, Vidal, almost spat the word out as if the mere name left a distaste in his jaws, insisted that we proceed. He insisted. Every council member replayed the video of the humans talking. Some orange flashes on face scale showed the council members were alarmed. How did the humans know? Continue, Selector Badal, Ambassador Fillock said softly. Continue. Badal steeled himself for the rest of his report. This was not going to be good. After two standard cycles allowed, we started the contest. When the doors opened to the arena, which had been covered in plants and trees native to their world, they simply ran out into the arena. Their clothing made it let them blend into the surroundings. They each carried their useless weapons. The contest should have been short, and in a way, it was. As our elite warriors descended via platform lift into the arena, their golden scales and plasma weapons shining. Every servant of the Empire on the ship was glowing white with pride. And then, uh, then the battle began.
Badal stopped. He switched the view screens to show the battle. As you see, he said, the humans did not huddle together for strength in numbers. They did not try and coordinate a defense of any type that we could ascertain. They simply moved to attack. Here we see Warrior Freeze try to eliminate an enemy at quite a distance away. But his eyes missed the large human crouched in conceding bush right in front of him, just a few paces away. The human shot his weapon at the face and eyes of Freeze, which, as projected, did not kill our warrior, but did stun and hurt it enough for the human to, uh, to, uh, well, uh, watch. The large human moved with incredible swiftness, closing the distance with Freeze while firing his weapon. The pop-pop-pop sound it made belayed the effect it had on the Empire's elite warrior. Reading back, his claws digging at his eyes, Freeze never saw the human swing his weapon like a club, holding onto the barrel, smashing the back end into Freeze's skull, shattering it with a sickening, crunching sound. All scales flashed red in anger as the council members saw what happened. Selected but dull remained quiet as the scene showed how the humans... One by one, overtook the elite fighters of the Empire, and without hesitation or mercy, slew every last one of them. Boy, the Emperor, their weapons were useless, their bodies were the weapons, a councilman said, watching and re-watching the scene where a human, about to be shot at point-blank range by a plasma lance while lying on the ground, kicked out and shattered a warrior's knee. And the human grappled with it, and when it fell, grappled with one of the Emperor's finest troops on the ground, and with its hands alone, choked the life out of the servant of the Empire. The human had been on the ground, seemingly helpless, and it overcame the pride of the Empire. The council chambers were silent. Then his voice strained. The ambassador asked, and what happened afterwards? What happened to the Emperor's grace? Bedell cast his eyes down again, not from protocol this time, but from shame. When we opened the hatch to neutralize the threat, the humans rushed into the ship proper. We were able to kill two of them, but at the expense of eight of our security force. They exchanged their own weapons for our plasma lances, which they seemed to handle as if they were trained by the Emperor himself. Verbict ordered the evacuation from the Emperor's grace, abandoning it to the humans. He took the shuttle for himself and left the rest of us to our fates. There were 23 servants of the Empire on board the Emperor's grace. Six made it to the escape pods or shuttles. All others were lost. Red scales flashed. Selector Badal was sure that Verbict would meet a quite dire end. Thank you, Selector, the ambassador said. Your report is of the greatest importance to the Empire. We now know a race of highly trained soldiers inhabit that world. Thank the Emperor they have not discovered gravimetric propulsion. We will quarantine their world and prevent them from reaching the stars. To think... The entire planet of highly trained warriors let loose in the universe. My scales shudder at the thought. With the decision made, Ambassador Felix started to address the council. I was shocked when he noticed Vidal was still standing in the room, watching them. You are excused, Selector, 
the ambassador said sternly. There's more, Badal said weakly. More? the ambassador asked, confused. We lost a ship to a race of superfighters. What more could there possibly be? Without saying a word, Badal used his datapad to activate the view screens and the loudspeakers. Once again, the humans were shown before the battle, discussing amongst themselves. Why us? one asked. They think that we are military. They think that we're soldiers, another said. But, but, this is just paintball guns. This is a game. We're not soldiers. I'm an accountant, for God's sake, replied the first. Then the view screens faded out. On every day to pad, an in-depth analysis of a paintball gun and its applications flashed. Every councilman's eyes were wide in shock. Videos of painful games and explanations rolled across in front of every council member. As you can see, Badal said solemnly, we did not capture their elite soldiers. We captured their race's workers, farmers, number eaters. The ones we captured were simply playing a game. And they took out our elite troops with ease. If we had captured real soldiers... Here, his voice gave out. There was nothing left to say. Every council member's scales were flashing a bright yellow as they desperately scanned their datapads, looking for something, anything that would ease their fear. Badal finished with one last sentence. And now they have a ship with gravimetric drive. As Selector Badal watched the council, he realized that their scales reflected his own, a yellow so bright that it almost had to shade his eyes from it. Then, of story. Tales from Outer Space 874. Humans are embarrassing. Written by OK Struggle 7016. Crew to battle stations, the captain called out, his voice booming in the bridge as the background lights turned red. Hundreds of my fellow crew members began to move around the bridge as the sounds of fire and crackle brought to life. Shells and other types of ordnance fly across the empty vacuum of space as the battle has just begun. A major battle between the two races, the Icelands, known for their technological superiority, an all-round corrupt major superpower in the known cosmos, and the Nithans, a race that was just making their ends meet. The war started several months ago, when the Icelands decided to harass both our major and minor shipping lanes through piracy and taxation. It was fine at first, having to resort to increasing our security and avoiding Iceland markets. But it escalated quickly when the Icelands decided to invade Pycon 1-6, one of the two Nithen trade centers that kept the nation's economy from going under. Typical of their political agenda. The Icelands claimed that the trade center was theirs to own, saying that the system was in their territory. We knew that it was absurd, and the rest of the nations within the Federation knew this. But nothing was done about it, and the ensuing problem, no actions were taken. The Icelands were simply too influential and powerful in the domain, that even if the rest of the Federation were to join forces and fight the Icelands, they would be stepped under the soles of their shoes. Our civilians urged the government to stoke the fires of war. The endearing, powerful voices of the high-ranking officials now calling on to the Senate to bring forth the guns, to take back what was rightfully ours. And we did. 
we called to arms, and no allied nations came to our aid. They knew that it was a one-way battle at this point. What were the officials thinking? Have they lost their minds? Within a month of the war effort, we'd lost already 25% of our ships to the much more powerful fleets of the Isen Dominari, and our territory has already been slowly chipped off to their hands. Hundreds of civilians that volunteered to the war effort were either dead or enslaved. We knew that the war between us and them would eventually go in their favor, until some human got caught in the Beloved. The humans were at first a simple fractured nation of bipeds that came into the picture a few centuries ago, known for their peaceful agenda. They were the lowest of the bunch, with any conflicts that occurred in their hands would be turned to peaceful negotiations and deals. They were nothing special, being called the embarrassment of the galaxy due to their weak nature. I mean, come on, they were easily conned to the worthless products that the market had to offer. Hell, even our markets joked about the humans trading worthless junk for even more worthless junk that we had. One seller even boasted how one person had been buying loads of dried-up seeds from him. Seeds that were so worthless that you could get a ton for just a few credits. To know what happened, the same human who buys the seeds was caught in the middle of the crossfire. A small freighted vessel that carried hundreds of tons of that thing was shot down by the Icelands as it went past through the trade route in a piracy attempt. Knowing the humans, they decided to leave him dead, adrift in the vast void of space. And we quickly picked them up by the moment the Iceland fleet left the sector. The human was nothing special. He was only wearing something that he called casual clothing. He was carrying a bag filled with some cooking utensils, three small packs of brown powder called sugar, and two small packs of those seeds, which he begged that we carry a container of it. We didn't approve of it. Our storage bay is already filled to the brim with more important supplies, and he wanted to squeeze in a container of worthless seeds of it. Embarrassing human. The human stayed with us for a month, and thanked the stars that the human wasn't bothering anyone or anything out of the ordinary. Asked the captain to send him home to the nearest Terran outpost, and he agreed, wanting to leave the human out of our ship for good. While that was happening, he spoke to us that the seeds in Pycon 1-6 were so cheap that he said that it was a gold mine. We snickered on that thought when he said those words. Even if Pycon had much more goods more valuable than just those seeds. He just kept on blabbering while he constantly bought them. Eventually, he would request a few tools to be used in his spare time. A small grinder, pasteurizers, a metal bowl, and access to the kitchen. We allowed it, as it won't take much time before he would be dropped off at the station. The cooks and I watched him as he brought that sack and his cooking equipment into the kitchen, took what was like a quarter of its contents and began removing the shells. He separated every seed with accuracy, sorting them into three various sizes, and roasted them. After the debacle, he began rounding up the roasted seeds, cutting them into smaller pieces. He even tripped and fell to the cold, hard metal when his bipedal leg got caught in the stall and spilled the bowl onto the floor. He laughed before he sighed and picked up the wasted thing like it was still at worth. He scooped the major parts and cleaned the spilled waste that he had created. 
he eventually returned to grind up the seeds again. This time, he was pushing them with a large club, and it came out oozing, sickly paste, in which he asked one of our cooks to help him out by holding the bowl. I could tell that the cook was disgusted with it, seeing the paste fall to the bowl, and the strong scent of which he almost hurled his entire lunch onto the paste-filled bowl. The human didn't notice this debacle, as he just said his compliments and left the cook in his own devices. He started on pouring some of the paste in a machine that he carried, poured a few liquids and sugar within, and flicked the switch, making a loud, whirring motion as it was activated and lasted a whole day cycle for it. The head cook was furious about it and complained about the noise, but gave off the human a warning when he apologized and stated that he won't repeat the process. Embarrassing human. He started on pulling out a few several containers and circular molds and began to pour the leftover paste into the molds and asked the cook once again to pour the processed paste into the small containers and place them into the freezer while wearing a mask for him not to bask in the excruciating scent that the kitchen had to handle for that day. The human was smiling, taking a whiff of the heavy scent, saying out a good compliment. He would jam the paste into the ships and place most of them into a container for us to use. Some of us would snicker, as to know why would anyone want to consume such things. All I did was repeat the words of the human when I got to try the warm hot product that was introduced into the cafeteria for my daily routine. Feck me. Apparently, the human had been up very early in his schedule and woke up one of the cooks and the servers to help him boil down some molded up hardened paste, turned it into some sort of broth and added sugar and milk and served it up to them. Eventually, hijinks ensued in the kitchen, as they began to wake up the rest of the cooks and servers to try what the human had created. Many of the crew had woken up because of the growing riot that happened in the kitchen. That silence didn't last long, because by the time the concoction was served to the crew, the noise turned up the roof when the loud ambiences of laughter and energetic glee would break out in the cafeteria. They called it Sikwet, or in simpler terms, Hot Tablia, a sweet drink that was meant to drink before and after our shifts to either energize or calm us after the day. This also boosted morale overall in the ship, as the drink made the crew more active and efficient during their shifts. He also introduced chocolate, a delicacy in humans that was used as snacks, and our crew were loving it, consuming them during breaks. Turns out, he has mostly been using the two products in business that has been booming to the far reaches of the cosmos. I can't believe that our markets have been selling these seeds at a very low price, and that they still haven't figured out how the human has made a fortune out of these. The cooks were interested in making such a delicacy, in which he agreed, teaching them the basics of the measurements until he was out of our hair, thanking us, and leaving us with his equipment and the ingredients on board. How I wish to see that embarrassing human again. Fire the kinetic warheads! Aim it towards the right formation! The captain yelled at his voice, as the ship began to fling out what said warheads towards the Elsian Armada. Explosions rocked the ship when the plasma bolt had struck the hull of the ship, dealing heavy damage to our cores, and we began to make our next move. 
The fleet of twelve Nithin vessels was now reduced to three and barely has enough willpower to fight. We gave our all in the fight, and which we had decided to sacrifice ourselves for the rest of the ships to escape to the nearest jump point. Keep our guns focused on the right flank. We need to make a way for the rest to escape. The captain ordered once again. As the detections officer called out to the captains about impending arrival of unknown ships in the sector. The captain groaned, what could it be now? We are already dealing with the Iceland fleet as it is. If these ships are going to be a problem for us, then let them. Um... They ask us about needing more of those uh, cocoa beans, captain. But what? What do you mean by cocoa beans? We have an entire fleet up our hides and you ask me about beans. The captain would get angry before I would realize what was happening. That embarrassing human had returned. The sudden jump of the Terran fleet into the sector startled my fellow crew, seeing a vessel that dwarfed our own. They would begin slinging out their guns and fighter craft, engaging the Iceland Armada without any questions. A few of the vessels would begin firing on their own ordnance into the enemy fleet, as the weapons pierced through the hulls and the shields like it was paper. Any ordnance coming straight for our ship was instead directed towards the new fleet, and they just shrugged them off like dust. The Iceland ships were falling one by one like paper. Sir, you have a line request from one of the Terran ships. The captain agreed to open the line, seeing the same clumsy human that was dressed in casual clothing, now bearing an officer's uniform. His smile still overbearing with bliss and glee. This is Admiral Amar of the Unified Terran Council, fleet designation Sampaquita of Mars. Do you need more hot tabla, or am I just late to the party? He chuckled as he grabbed a mug of that hot concoction and placed it in between his lips. Took you long enough, embarrassing human! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 875 Story number one. Drug Substance 37-C Written by Blashed Substance 37-C is banned in most of sentient circles. The drug has been a scourge amongst the galactic races for eons, wiping out entire colonies, planets, and civilizations with its dictative lure. Every time the uppity planet thinks it would be a good idea to discuss decriminalization, they are snuffed out. The thought being one planet is a better sacrifice than a whole system. The black market was the only place to acquire it for the longest time. Even they stopped carrying it though, after centuries of raids, figuring out that it's easier to operate with a metaphorical hand grenade than an orbital hypercannon. No one wants to bring the whole operation down for a few extra credits. Scientists have completely given up on studying the substance. In smaller creature testing, the galactic standard using of disgusting bell sport for trials, most don't survive three microcycles before their brains and nervous systems tear themselves apart. Scientists have managed to study cases in the wild and found the symptoms to be the same, if not on a longer timescale. The first stage of the drug high is elevated sense of awareness, followed by a complete euphoria and the abrupt death. Conscious brain waves cease at this point. In the second stage, the deceased body shudders and convulses as the nervous system still makes input from seizing brain impulses. 
The final stage is the body ripping itself apart as the convulsing increases. In exceptionally small doses, the recipient may only experience the first half of the first stage, but that usually never happens. The dosage would have to be so minuscule that the user couldn't measure it accurately with any common instrument. If it is so deadly, why would sentience continue to take the drug? Unfortunately, as the body rips apart, pheromones are released into the air. In contact with other sentients, the pheromones cause similar symptoms to the initial victim's drug high. It is viral-like in its nature, and spreads easily. Malicious parties sometimes introduce it into the system as a way to destabilize governments or create havoc. Sometimes it is introduced into the world by sheer stupidity. Sometimes it just grows there, though. It's a dreadful substance, truly a scourge of anything civil and rational. I hear they shoot it into their veins, and their eyes turn black, and they start screaming murder. The Galgaza, named Hellbeck, waved his claws in the air, frantically gesturing at some invisible monster. The squatty, frog-like creature next to him scoffed, the sound like marbles being gargled. You're crazy, Hilbuck. No race can use 37-C like that. He was quiet for a moment and then looked down at his mug, but, um, I do hear they put it in the drinks by a handful and gulp it down like water. Hilbrook shook his insectoid head and downed the rest of his drink. Very few inebriating substances were consumable by galactic races, but the purple space scrub seemed to be standard for most. I'm telling you, Grog, they're monsters, and we shouldn't have made contact with them. He looked over the top of Grog's head at Yalvin, a furry, muscular space captain whose giant arms dominated the bar space in front of him. Let alone made one on a crew member. Yalvin glowered at Hilbrook, who quickly shut his mouth. Shovel, Hilbrook, don't go blotting stars in Nebula. He threw credits down on the bar and hauled himself out of the seat. Come on, let's get back. Galgaza muttered and got up, Grog following suit. When they finally got back to the ship, they opened the common area to find the place crowded with crew members. A gaggle of scientists created a low rumble as voices poured over one another. Questions were hurled at the creature sitting in the middle, his back resting on the table and calm expression on his face. He wore a worn-out crew outfit and his hair was swept to one side. He had just arrived on the ship minutes ago. Ah, how are you actually a human? A voice shouted out in commotion. That I am, the creature in the middle said, murmurs rippling through the crowd. Can you really lift one thousand SU? Another voice shouted. The human scratched his head. Well, no, only nine hundred, the crowd gasped. Can you really go into the liquid and onto land? The human let out a small chuckle. Well, in a sense, yes. I can't breathe water or anything, but I can swim in it. Many other members in the crowd nodded and let out noises of agreement. Most had figured this, or at least heard humans were capable of it. Yelvin could feel Helbrook's unease as he nudged him in the elbow. Go ahead, ask him. You're not scared, are you? Yelvin already knew most of what the human was capable of. He had hired him, after all, but even he was intrigued by him. The Golgaza shifted and flicked his mandibles, gathering his courage. He raised his claws and shouted over the murmuring crowd, Do you really use 37-C? Can you really survive it? The crowd fell dead silent. No one breathed, 
Every crew member had been wondering it, but none had the courage to ask. All eyes strained on the human as he looked over Hilbrick's grease claw. He closed his arms and raised his eyebrow. I don't care what the council says. They can burn it all they want, but they can pry caffeine from my cold, dead hands. The crowd stared in shock, their silence defining. Yelvin thought he could hear Grog's heartbeat. He could definitely hear Hilbrick's fearful breathing. The human looked around and shrugged, leaning back into the table where he sat. Breakfast just isn't the same without coffee. End of story. Story number two. They promised they would. Written by Lord the Jupe. Gather around, youth of my young, and listen. Your parents did as my own parents. Heard these words, and you, in time, will tell them. Exactly as I tell them now. Every night, until there are no lights, we are held to the promise and saved by another. The story begins with war. It tore worlds apart, and ours was no different. We pledged fealty to different leaders for many reasons. And when they came, we thought, these are no different than any other. False words, hollow statements, and empty threats. They would come, they would leave, and we would endure, as always. We had known war, you see, as it was our birthright. Our species emerged from the jungles in a struggle. Crossed vast plains, then oceans, and still we carried the struggle within us all. And when we met our own, we shared that struggle violently, and often, as is our way. Today, this is not so. Today, we live in the shadow of a promise, and we will uphold our promise, it replied. Above us, a grand edifice is built by the last invaders this world will ever know, for we are guarded by this promise itself. Those invaders said that they would give us farmlands, where once we knew deserts and wasteland, and the need they delivered. Our remaining deserts are heritage spaces and wildlife preserves, kept out of posterity and genetic cataloging. They promised us time of plenty if we labored hard for it. And thus our world knows no starvation. Hunger is a hobby, not a birthright. And we live in a time of plenty perpetually. And yes, the labor is hard enough to keep us honest about it. They promised that the hand that struck us would pull back a stump. For we were their allies. If only we would lend them our skies long enough to build their ships and their stations and their many, many wonderful, horrible things that move between the stars. And then the menace came. They broadcasted in all of our many frequencies, across many networks, and made many threats. They named us one by one and said that we would be sold as meat, traded for goods and services, trafficked to the farthest corner of the galaxy, and far, far more sinister than not meant for your ears. Oh, I suspect you'll find them should you be curious enough to look for them. 
And they arrived and saw our world undefended, unguarded, outside of all patrol routes. And with only one phrase to say, our perpetual greeting to all would-be invaders as part of the promise. Those words have ancient meaning, you see, my lovely younglings. And it digs deep into the memories of when our promised were once a great scourge onto the many faces of evil in the galaxy. Indeed, they said the same words and saw fear in the eyes of all who heard it. For they knew what it meant to go one step further. Their enemies would accept no mercy, would have no reprieve, and suffer immensely well before expiring in the most violent of all retributions. For to anger them, it was to dare darkness itself, to overwhelm and swallow one whole. The names of those species who no longer exist is long, and are the shadows of those who fled when they spoke those words of the promise to the menace. They left unharmed as we were unharmed, and have been unharmed ever since the days of days. And today, after hearing the story, words followed words, as I heard them when I was exactly your age, and as you all graduate onto the highest echelons of communications offices, and thus become the ears and mouth of our world and beyond, you may hear them now in full. Fuck around and find out. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 876. Story number one. Underestimation written by Tiny Bard. We thought that the humans would be easy to conquer. They had barely reached the planets closest to them with robotic probes. They had no knowledge of directed energy weapons or hyperspace travel. Their planet would be a welcome prize for the Empire. We launched devastating, simultaneous attacks against their military installations. We thought that without the war cost, the rest would fall easily. To be fair, we were right at first. We landed our forces for a ground assault to avoid their nuclear weapons and made incredible progress. We took many of the larger cities and annihilated their resistance in the first two days of our arrival. We had begun to congratulate ourselves at the subjugation of another world. Then the third day dawned, and our progress stopped. We had been opposed only by a small number of the war caste, who were not in their military bases. We assumed that they had been guarding the leader class or policing the worker class, and there weren't that many of them left. But when the third day dawned, they came at us with a ferocity that we'd never before encountered. They had somehow found numbers to replenish those that we had slain. We were stunned by the resistance and lost ground for the first time in the war. The next day was worse. It seemed that the fury of the dead possessed them. Cities which had been fully under control exploded in violence, with war costs popping out of seemingly nowhere to attack our forces. We were totally caught off guard. Their life cycles were comparable to ours, so how could they possibly have raised more war cost in just three days? We would not learn the answer until we managed to capture one of their warbands. They were not only war class, after all, but a mixture of worker class, leader class, and even some children no more than sixteen revolutions of their planet old. It was then that we discovered 
that they did not have castes. They were not raised in a single path of birth as we were. They chose their own occupations as they grew. We had underestimated the adaptability of humanity. Every human, every man, woman, and child rose up against us. The very planet itself seemed to burn with an angry fire that wanted us gone. For the first time in living memory, the Empire suffered a crushing military defeat at the hands of primitives. We fled from that world with their nuclear fire, chasing our ships from orbit. We regrouped at the edge of the solar system. Our leader cast had been slain in our retreat, and so we waited for a replacement from Homeworld. The new leader cast came with the decision from the High Emperor himself that this could not be allowed. No one could defeat the Empire and live to tell about it. The humans must be destroyed utterly. And so we laid a course for their world, but we were stopped almost as soon as we began. There was a massive hyperspace interdiction field around the entire solar system. Such a feat was something only theorized by the most brilliant of our thinker class. An interdiction field of such size and strength as to render the space the size of a star system inaccessible. The humans had, in the space of half a revolution of their planet, achieved a technical feat that was beyond our own. We were unable to fill the wishes of the High Emperor. It would take our faster ships several years to reach the human's planet, and they would see us coming long enough to set up all manner of deadly traps in our way. And so we set up a line of observational satellites around the star system, focused upon their planet. What we saw scared us almost as much as their ferocity at war. The humans had united together in the face of an external enemy. All the resources of their world were focused on preparing. There were massive shipyards in orbit around their world, each turning out dizzying numbers of ships and satellites. It was not until another half-cycle later that we made another, even more terrifying discovery. They could use hyperspace within their own interdiction field. Ships were popping in and out of hyperspace all over the system. Outposts were quickly established on nearly everything bigger than a boulder throughout the system. We had underestimated the efficiency of humanity. What we had thought of as an easy addition to the vassal worlds of the Empire had turned into the most secure system in the entire galaxy. Then our ships began to explode. Ten rotations after our retreat, as if the hand of some angry god had reached out to smite us. Five of our largest observational fleet blossomed into massive fireballs. A moment later, five more ships were torn to shreds. Within minutes, the fleet was reduced by half. The leader cast ordered a full retreat. Once again, the invisible navy of the Empire was forced to retreat from these humans. This time, because of a weapon that we could not even see. Once the remains of the fleet were several light years away from the dreaded humans, the thinker cast of our fleet began pouring over the data from just before the ships began to explode. They discovered hyperspace disturbances, as if the ships were re-entering real space. One of their observational satellites was being recalibrated, happened to catch sight of the vessel. A hunk of metal, shaped like one of the humans' ballistic projectiles, emerged from hyperspace at a very large percentage of the speed of light and impacted the warship. The slug was too small to hold a hyperdrive, 
about the size of one of their weird ground vehicles. How had they gotten such a small thing into hyperspace? We queried one of the remaining observational satellites. After some searching, we found them. Five massive stations in orbit around their star, each one shaped vaguely like a gun. The Thingercast, who made the discovery, soiled themselves upon realizing what they were. Hyperspace Cannons Another technological marvel, built from the sturdy of technology we left behind. The humans were a force to be reckoned with. They no longer had the numbers to fight a conventional war. Even ten cycles later, they could not have replenished the numbers to anywhere close to what they would need to wage an interstellar warfare. So they accomplished with quality what they could no longer do with quantity. They waged war with no casualties on their side. We had underestimated humanity's ingenuity. And wage war they did. Military installations, shipyards, food production, all were targets of the humans' hyperspace cannons. Fear of the human menace spread across the entire empire. It was only after everything was over that we realized that the human ships had spread across the stars, acting as scouts, reporting coordinates for strikes. With each strike came one demand from the humans. Surrender! Broadcast in our own language. We tried to fight back. Our own hyperspace cannons were destroyed before completion. Somehow, the humans always found them under construction. Finally, the Imperial Palace itself was destroyed, leveled by shots from two of the cannons. We had no choice. Without having seen any humans face to face for nearly 15 cycles, we surrendered completely and unconditionally. We were forced to disarm, free all conquered vassal worlds, and pay reparations to those wronged by the Empire. Then, humanity emerged. They spread across the stars and, to everyone's surprise, began to help rebuild. Riots and destruction had followed the death of the royal family. The humans put a stop to it. They calmed the riots, distributed food, and cared for the injured. Even Imperials were cared for equally. We had underestimated humanity's compassion. An excerpt from the cast Lord Quark's speech upon the occasion of liberated Imperium's acceptance into the United Galactic Council, July 6, 2060. Mr. Quag was one of the first Old Empire's warcasts to change careers following the dissolution of the Old Empire, August 21, 2035. End of story. Story number two. A brief look at an actual Terran military ship, written by Quasar Ironfist. We somehow got a tour of a human heavy patrol ship. Considering we are yet to see a bigger ship in the Navy, or anyone else's Navy, we presume and hope that the name is a joke and that it's in fact the biggest warship they have. Presumably. The Vigilant class, informally known as the Not a Gash Giant class, has an impressive array of capabilities and weaponry, though a fair bit is classified. Starting off with the direct weaponry. It has 3,000 stellar detonation weapons, for redundancy and critical functions, 30,000 planet-cracking kinetic launchers, 300,000 anti-capital ship weapons, a mix of kinetics, missiles, and lasers, 3 million anti-corvette weapons, again, a mixture of kinetics, missiles, and lasers. Finally, it has anti-personnel weapons scattered across the hull. By anti-personnel, we mean it shoots someone across a star system. And through a planet or three. 
and leaves only a small hole through anything in its path, with uh, minimal collateral damage. All of that is standard anyway. Crews are encouraged to add their own personal touch. Defense. There are at least 300-point defense weapons, both for taking down fighter craft and missiles, covering any given point on its hull. Each point of its hull. As in, there's a whole lot more in total. The armor itself is, I'm afraid to say, incredibly classified. The war blocking and EW suites are, uh, excessive. As for the shielding, uh, they had to, relatively speaking, massively lower it so that we could get within hundreds of thousands of kilometers of it without hallucinating being made of berries. The shielding is quite strong. Movement. The movement is done entirely by gravity manipulation so that there are no exposed engines. Such devices are also responsible for making sure that the mass of the ship doesn't deorbit anything in the star system itself. Utility. This thing isn't the only unstoppable juggernaut. It's an unstoppable juggernaut that can repair itself and churn out entire fleets. It utilizes a combination of mining vessels and stellar lifters to acquire material. Considering its fabrication capabilities, it can, theoretically speaking, patrol an area of space for essentially forever, until the heat death of the universe. Oh, and given a bit of time and a lot of raw resources, it can make more of itself. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 877 Pens and Pallets, or We're Not Food Written by Chucky Snow Welcome to Earth, announced Targreen Minush, the chief diplomat on the space station. He was warmly greeting the four Kintel delegated as they were ambling through the main auditorium. They nodded in a genial way, moving towards the chairs that were obviously designed for the tripedal bodies. A dozen cameras captured every single angle of the room. The majority of humanity, easily over 10 billion, had watched the proceedings since the small Kindle ship appeared on radar. They now watched as the chosen delegates from Earth were about to sign the first treaty with an alien species. It was little more than a trade agreement, but it still marked an evolutionary step for mankind's development. To be regarded as an equal by another space-going species could not be understated. Of the six known races, we seemed to get along better with the Kintel than anyone else, and today would finally formalize that friendship. Both teams knew the other's language well enough to converse in it, but the Kintel and humans had decided to use Galactic Common, simplified language that could be spoken by all known species. Recordings of the meeting would be surely sent to all races. Many schools on Earth taught Common, though there are undoubtedly teams of translators that would be captioning and feed for those that hadn't learnt it yet. The four humans and the four Kintel delegates sat down. Pleasantries were exchanged, simple speeches were made, and then finally one of the Kintels handed the prepared document across the table. It had come as a wry surprise to the humans that lawyers were a constant presence throughout the galaxy. Even the Franks, who didn't have politicians, still had lawyers, the documents they now held had been poured over numerous times on both sides. They established relations, some trade agreements, and even laid the foundations for mutual defense pact. The humans were delighted just how fair the agreement was. Humans weren't exactly a lesser race, but the Kintel had been trading with the other races for millennia. The Kintel had nothing forcing them to be so accommodating. There uh, was a reason. 
One of the human delegates, Sergio Cortez, a representative from the Americas, ripped through the stacks of papers given to him. A quick reader, he had been given a task of checking the treaty for anything that might have gotten slipped in at the last minute. He found something, an addendum to one of the sections relating to the trades of perishable goods. He frowned. Maybe there was an error in translation. Mr. Monash, sir, may I bring your attention to page 47? There seems to be an addendum we have not seen before, Sergio said, talking to the human, but watching the cantal. They seemed nonplussed and did not bother flipping the page in question. The other human flipped through and began reading. To those watching across Earth, the silence was deafening. Seeing the reaction, Sergio continued reading to make sure nothing else had been added. My friends, when Ash began cautiously, there is an interesting item that you've included in this addendum under section 3, paragraph 9, regarding breeding stocks of food animals. I see that you've added humans on the list of animals you want samples of. Yes, we have, one of the Kentel replied, as if they would explain everything. Page 60, Sojo muttered, and continued reading. Ah, Humans are not considered food. We are happy to provide cattle, swine, goats, and various types of avian species, but not humans. Me would like humans to be added to the list of tradable food animals, and we would like to be provided with 100 breeding pairs of humans. What? Menash asked incredulously. Page 60, Sojo said, in a slightly high timbre. The other humans searched their documents again. Like you, we are omnivorous. There are few resources that you can offer us that we would need, besides your unique flora and fauna. It has come to our attention that in your past you have had cultures that ate other humans. We can only assume that your flesh is enjoyable to the palate, and as such we would like some samples. We are happy to take members of your incarcerated populations, so long as they are still of breeding age. So, uh, you intend to breed humans for food? Yes, unless we do not find you pleasing, in which case we'll simply use the humans for study and possibly as servants. If we do not taste good enough, you intend to make slaves of us. The word us seems to be an error. We do not plan on enslaving nor eating all of you. We will take a few undesirable members of your species. As a race, you still have crime, and occasionally kill members of your race who commit crime. We simply take those members you plan to kill. It seems quite efficient to us. Do you not agree? I disagree strongly to many of the points you just tried to make. No human is ever to be considered food. No human is ever to be considered a servant or more likely a slave to you. The idea of taking prisoners in order to begin a breeding colony is totally unacceptable. Until this language is removed, this treaty cannot be signed by us. Oh, page 102, Sojo said, with an urgency to his voice. Delegate Munash, we may have made some alterations to our treaty. But certainly nothing we have asked for should keep us from signing this today. I believe that you're trying very hard not to have this treaty signed by us, Munash said, flipping to page 102. He read for a moment, 
and jumped up in anger. He kept reading, and he found the strength to compose himself. He reread a passage while the others in the room stared at him quietly. I'd like you to read this section out loud so that we can all understand what is being asked of the humans, he said, staring not at the Kintel but at the camera aimed at him. In the event that the human food stock is deemed suitable, and with the understanding that human birth rate is very low, we reserve the right to cull the human population as we see fit. To no more than 1% of the total population within a soda year. Toggy spoke, and unemotionally as possible. With understood variations in stock, the Kintel would expect complete control of the selection of the food stock. The human dropped his copy to the treaty table. I will apologize that the humans were under the misunderstanding that this was a peace treaty, Munash said, attempting to keep his surging anger in check. But it is. My fellow delegates, there is nothing sure about us enjoying the taste of your flesh, and most likely we will find a way to speed up the birth rate of humans, should we find the need. Certainly, our culling would only be required if all other options were to fail us, the Kendall said, opening his arms as to signal understanding. This language must be removed, or we cannot continue. The language must stay, or we cannot continue. He paused. Then you certainly wouldn't object to allowing humans to use Kintel as food stock. As you said, we are both omnivorous. I'm sure millions of humans would delight in eating Kintel flesh. The Kintel began talking to themselves rapidly in their own language. After a moment, a different member of the alien delegation spoke to the humans. Is this an attempt to insult us, or is this an attempt at humor? No, Manash said dryly. We are simply negotiating, as you are. Perhaps now you understand how insulted we are by your request. It is not a request. It is a demand. You should be happy that this is all we demand of you. The original Kindle spoke, much louder and harsher than before. They stared at each other. The Kintel's four eyes to the humans, too. It was obvious that the Kintel was deadly serious, and that they did not intend to leave without the treaty. Worthless, as it now obviously was. Manush turned and looked at the human delegates, seated on both sides of him. They made his stare with silent determination. He gave a knowing glance up to the cameras as he removed a pen from inside his jacket. It was an old-style fountain pen, very ornate, and was created specially to sign this treaty. He removed the cap and rolled the pen in his fingers. He felt a bit numb, the events of the last few minutes thundering around in his mind. He gave his thoughts a moment to organize themselves and knew what he had to do. Really, there was only one option. He flipped to the last page of the treaty and stared at the page. I want you to know that what I do now, I do with what we humans call a heavy heart. I had hoped that we could enter an agreement that would move our peoples forward. Instead, I find myself being asked to surrender ourselves as cattle to a race I thought were friends. I hope that I can be forgiven for what I'm about to do. It occurred to all three other humans that Manash was holding his pen the wrong way in an instant before Targi launched himself across the conference table. 
forcibly driving his pen deep into the eye socket of the head control. The other control were frozen in shock as the other humans chose and attacked their opponents. The control were not fighters, and even without weapons, the humans were able to kill three or four delegates without a real assistance. The last control's several limbs bent in unnatural positions was left howling in pain. It did not stop until one of the humans used his own clothing as a gag. Are you willing to deliver a message back to your leaders? Manash asked, staring down at the quivering control. It took several moments for the creature to compose itself enough to signal compliance. Good. Your message will be very simple. We humans have accepted your declaration of war. For effect, he grabbed one of the packets and snapped the kintel with it. I'm going to put you into one of these ships and send you on your way. Don't worry about having limbs to use. The ship will be on autopilot. We're going to assume that your ship has weapons of some kind, and I'd hate for our meeting to get any bloodier than it already has. It's a shame that our two races couldn't have come together in some understanding. I believe we really do have much to offer the Gintel. It's a pity that you demanded we lie down for you. Humans do many things, but bending the knee is not one of them. You open hostilities with that so-called treaty, and our response should have been expected. Your superiors may decide to retaliate for what has happened today. That would be unwise. We have the ability and motivation to fight back. You claim today that you had studied our history. That same history should terrify any sane race that wants to attack us. Go home and tell your superiors that we're still open to negotiations, if they wish to sue for peace. I'd strongly suggest that they do. And... Of story. Tales from Outer Space 878. Story number two. Humanity's Boon, written by Digital 332006. Have you ever realized that in some way, shape, or form, humans are always involved in all the myriad of important events in the universe? They don't even account for 1% of the total population. So how can it be that they are the crux of everything? Well, that is likely because of the boon. Ask me. It goes like this. Once a civilization manages to upkeep an off-world colony for more than 1,234 days, they are considered out of the tutorial. A being known as the Creator contacts their civilization and informs them of a few things. Paramount amongst them is the ability to choose a boon. This gift from the Creator is something that will affect the entire species henceforth. Super strength, light, genius intellect, and all sorts of powers are on the table. Owls, the Vagnar, have chosen immortality. We are amongst the earliest to obtain a boo and have kept records of the universe for eons. A few times, greed has gotten the best of a species and their demands were so outrageous that they were denied, losing the chance altogether to get one. However... For humans, it was a bit different. This is how it went. A loud voice echoed inside every living human's head simultaneously, speaking clearly. Congratulations, humans. You have achieved a feat that few ever do. Your colony of Titan was worthy of the designation. 
I sent some along. Do not be afraid. I am the creator, also your creator. I have many names in your history, but most accounts are not accurate. No, it is not the end of times. It is rather the beginning. I have merely come to confer some knowledge and speak on things to come. The minds of the entirety of humanity raced relentlessly, trying to understand what was happening. Yes, many worthy questions run in your minds. Yes, many worthy questions run in your minds. Some of you wonder if you are alone in the universe. You are not. There are many others like you whose worlds I have created. You will meet them in time. You have not been able yet, as that was by design. And in order to give you time, the technologies required will become unlocked after the end of my visit. Before anything else, we must discuss a few rules. I do not interfere in the affairs of any species, save for this interaction. Every species maintains its free will and can do as it wills, including inflicting terrible acts of destruction upon each other. Lastly, I will grant you a boon before I leave. It is a singular gift that will affect your entire species. I'll grant one week to think it over. Then I shall return. What ensued was absolute chaos. Productivity basically halted instantly. People stopping to work and massive protests rising up in many countries. Behind the scenes, governments contacted each other and began talking. Ideas were thrown around, shut down, and no one could argue on anything. On the sixth day, someone came up with something. It felt appropriate. The idea began airing on every television station, radio, and podcast, so that every human could think of it when the creator returned. And that day came quickly. It has been one week. Have you reached a consensus on majority? Came the voice in everyone's minds. Speaking to no one in particular, it scoured their minds of the population, finding the relevant information. There are few things that all humans share, but if we go towards morality or spirituality, there are many divergences. The one thing everyone shares, however, is that we all are the heroes of our own stories. We wish for our boon to be. Humanity are the protagonist. Hmm. How would you propose I accomplish that? You know, if the universe was a book, we would be the main characters. Present of most events and turning points, plot armor shields us, and the story has a certain human-centric point of view. That uh, is quite unique. Are you certain there is no undoing this? Oh, quite. We came prepared with some backup ideas. If this wasn't possible, I believe our second choice is the ability to break the fourth wall. The collective mind of humanity expressed, winking at the readers. Very well. So it shall be. After a long, awkward pause, it seemed the creator had left, leaving much of humanity to wonder if the boon even worked. As was said, breakthroughs in physics and various fields occurred, providing access to technologies that helped humanity reach the stars. Now all that remains to be seen is only the protagonists of a science fiction story. Or something else. End of story. It is not human, written by Barsoom Israel. When you think of humans, what comes to mind? The old man asked, a flock of his feathered grandchildren gathered around. 
all paying rapt attention to the ancient sage. War, piped in one fledgling. No, making peace, piped up another. The old sage nodded grimly. Anything else? he asked quietly. Help us, liars, brave, loyal, cowards. All of these words were thrown out in the hopes of catching the great sage's ear. But it was not until Friedak, his oldest son's child, spoke softly. Discontented, that the grandfather wrecked. All true, he said, and stretched his pinion feathers to his grandson. But Freelak, as the entire race, explained with but a single word. He looked over the young flock gathered at his feet and said, Like most races, ours included, there are humans that are kind, some that are wicked and others joyous, some solemn, but the only trait all humans have in common is that they are discontent. Do humans fly like we do? Do they have wings? No, a chorus of voices answered immediately. Ah, the old man said, yet they own the skies. On their world, they were bound to the soil beneath their feet, unable to soar on the winds. They saw and envied the avians overhead, wishing for the freedom their flight brings. So what did they do? No answer was forthcoming, so he continued. They ripped wood and metal from the ground. They fashioned wings from them and joined the avians in the skies. But still they were not content. They had to go faster, farther, quieter, higher. They had joined their feathered masters of the air. But they needed to beat them all. They needed to beat the air itself. Stunned silence greeted his words. He continued quietly. Do humans have gills, like the fish in our waters? No, came the reply. Not so loud as before. Yet they mastered the water, did they not? They envied the fish and the creatures of the oceans, wishing that they, too, could breathe the life water provided and float endlessly in the bosom of the seas. So they ripped metal and wood from the ground and forced the oceans to give up its mysteries. They found ways to breathe under the waves and travel to the depths that would crush the hardiest of ocean-faring denizens. They were not content with swimming and gasping for breath at the tops of the waves. They had to beat the ocean itself. Not a chirp was heard. All fledglings listened to every word that dripped from the old sage's beak. And then the humans looked to the night sky. They were not content with being the masters of their entire world. They wanted new worlds to walk on, to explore, to bend to their will. A small squawk or two of alarm escaped unbidden from some of the children. Humans ripped wood and metal from the ground and took to the stars, the sage said. And what did they find, my children? The old man asked. The drones, Freelak said quietly, with a shudder, as if speaking their name may bring a blight upon them. Yes, the drones, the ancient bird replied. Our captors, our slavers, owls, and a dozen others. The humans helped us, one small bird piped up. Eyes bright. Yes, child, the sage replied. They helped us. When the Druans attempted to enslave the humans, they fought back. The Druans had no idea what they were dealing with. They had never fought a race so tenacious, so unforgiving, so uh, discontented with losing before. They never stood a chance. But the humans beat the Druans and were all killed themselves, right? 
That is what my sire says, chirped one. Letting out a low, soft laugh, the sage said, Oh, no, child, the humans are not gone for good. Yes, they beat the drones. Yes, they freed us and all the others. And yes, they were terribly crippled by the war. But before they took their leave of us, they promised to return and to start a friendship that would span ages. Feathers ruffled in both fear and delight. Off to the nest now, all of you, the sage said, herding them to the waiting arms of the matrons. Grandfather, Relax said, is that why you step out every night to scan the stars? Do you look for the return? The humans... Smiling, the old man wrapped his wing around his grandson. Relax, you were always a smart egg, he said. Yes, dear heart, that is why I come out every night. I look for the return of the humans, because I know they will not be content to stay away for long. It is not in their nature. It is not human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 879 If something goes wrong, here's what you should do. First, run to the escape pod. Second, ignore anything I tell you to do during the emergency. Written by Monty the Snack. Listen, if something goes wrong, here's what you should do. First, run for the escape pod. Second, ignore anything I tell you to do during the emergency. Kafka looked at the human incredulously. He raised his curiosity wing from under his exoskeleton and replied in a chittery voice. How do you mean, Miss Silva? You are the captain of the ship. You say I should not listen to you in an emergencies. Kafka knew that the humans could be illogical at times, but he didn't expect to be faced with such a contradiction on the first day working an interstellar freighter. Silva crossed her arms. That's right. You've never been out of your home system, right, Kafka? He began to raise his affirmation wing, but Silva continued before he could verbally confirm the fact. Well, you should know that space pirates are very real, despite what the Trade Federation tells you. Silva paused and stared directly into Kafka's compound eyes. And they're not at all like what you see on the serials. We either give them the cargo or they take it by force, usually along with your life. The finality with which Silver finished that statement sent chills down Kafka's exoskeleton. He had no doubt that she spoke from experience. Silver continued after a moment of tense silence. I value my crew's lives over my cargo, so my order is simple. Something goes wrong, be it space pirates or an engine overload, go to the escape pod immediately. Kafka could only stand in contemplation. In an attempt to reply, he let out his incoherent chitter, before steadying himself at replying. But, Miss Silver, what if you refused to come to the escape pod with the rest of us? Surely you would not want us to leave you alone with the pirates. Silver replied without hesitation. Leave me! Kafka's face fell as he raised a wing of displeasure and cried out in protest. But, Miss Silver, what if... He tried to say, but she cut him off. Kafka... It won't be my first crisis on the ship, and it sure as hell won't be my last. All I want is for you and the rest of the crew to escape as soon as possible, and land at the nearest safe zone. She turned around and began walking down the hall towards the cockpit. I'll be able to handle whatever fate decides to throw at me, so don't worry, she said, before disappearing behind the door to the bridge. He didn't know how to respond to that, 
Sir Kafka simply bowed out and left his post. He never expected to have to act on Silver's orders so soon. Kafka was in the cargo bay mopping up the sand from yesterday's cargo loading. Silver had stopped on one of the many deserts of Zolfin III to pick up the Promethean fuel shipments, and an errant sandstorm had gotten sand into every nook and cranny of the cavernous room's floor. As he mopped, Kafka took note of how empty the room was. The few dozen waist-high crates scattered around seemed like almost nothing compared to the rows he saw waiting for them at the platform back on planet side. With his curiosity wing raised, he turned to Biff, a senior crew member, who was helping him clean. Don't you remember there being more cargo than this? I'm sure there was way more than this back on Zoltan Three. The burly slug shifted one of his three-eyed stalks at Kafka and replied through his digital translator. I believe the storm swept away most of the cargo. Silver decided to cut losses and ship what remained. Kafka raised his displeasure wing alongside his curiosity wing. He couldn't believe that any storm could have blown away the cargo. Each of these boxes had to weigh at least two tons. It just didn't make sense. Kafka's rebuttal, however, was preempted by the ship's speakers crackling to life with Silver's voice. All crew to bridge, all crew to bridge. Kafka scuttled over the bridge as fast as his four legs could take him. Biv, who had taken the lead ahead of Kafka, had told him that Silver didn't use the intercom unless it was an emergency. Is it pirates this time, or did something go wrong with the atmospherics? He mumbled warrantly to himself. He arrived at the bridge with a thousand thoughts of what could have gone wrong, and still found himself dreadfully surprised when he saw the threat on the bridge's central monitor. An unidentified vessel was drifting towards them. It's pirates! Pirates! Why did my first emergency have to be pirates? Couldn't it have been vagard infestation or something? At least those won't kill you. Kafka's nervous muttering was interrupted by the arrival of more people to the bridge. It seemed that he and Biv had gotten there first, which meant that each of the two dozen other crew members gave him a strange looks as they passed by his position next to the bridge door. Silver had arrived last. She had evidently been working on the ship elsewhere. Probably a fault in one of the doors, or she's all covered in oil, Kafka thought to himself. He didn't have time to speculate any further, though, as Silver had begun to speak. Our ship has received a transmission from the unidentified craft you see on the screen. They demand surrender for all of our material goods. Everyone, go get your personal valuables onto the escape pod. Her speech was curt and uninspiring, but everyone present hustled out the room with a fervor that seemed to indicate otherwise. Kafka was swept up in the rush of people heading towards the quarters before he could even raise a wing. As they packed, Biv must have noticed Kafka's displeasure wing raised to its fullest, because he placed a single feeler on Kafka's shoulders as they packed. Do not worry, Kafka. Silver knows what she's doing, Biv assured him. Kafka didn't lower his displeasure wing any, but he did spare a glance to the rest of the crew as everyone packed what little they had into travel cases. Is everybody gone? We're being attacked, aren't we? Kafka anxiously whispered back to Biv. Yes, but it's fine. We are close to the Federation Star Station. The escape pod will take us that far. Biv replied nonchalantly to Kafka, who was now shaking his wing anxiously. Come, we should go to the pod now. We don't have much time. Biv continued to reassure Kafka until they were both secured in the pod. 
Kafka sat in the harness, fidgeting. They hadn't taken off yet, which made him nervous. He heard a grunt from Bub, who was being repeatedly slapped by Kafka's displeasure wing, which was now bobbing around as fast as it could. Kafka stammered out an apology and made a conscious effort to stop his wing as he inspected the pod from his seat. It's so small, he remarked quietly to himself. This escape pod was clearly not built to legal standards. The wall panels seemed to be ready to fall off of the scaffolding, and the pod seats were so cramped that the pilot had several of the passengers' legs dangling between him and the console. Before his thoughts could wonder, Kafka was interrupted by the low hum of an ancient monitor coming to life next to the pod's entry hatch. He and the rest of the crew craned their heads towards the screen, which was tuned to the ship's security frequency. Kafka sat with bated breath, watching Silva arrive at the docking airlock near the back of the cargo bay. She sat on one of the crates, swinging her legs back and forth while waiting for the airlock to open. The doors opened after what felt like an eternity, and seven wolf-like bipeds strode onto the ship, each brightly feathered in all shades of red and yellow. Kafka let out a gasp. The pirates were ashtracks, all of them. They were the rarest and deadliest species known to the Federation, and seven of them just boarded Silver's freighter. Their massive, muscular bodies dwarfed Silver's comparatively tiny frame, and the patchwork metal plate armor covering the chests bore numerous scars. Each pirate held a battered laser in their hands. Even Silver must have been surprised based on her delayed reaction in standing up to greet her unwanted guests. The display had no audio, but Kafka still chittered nervously as he watched her speak to them. After a few moments, the largest asterisk pointed his rifle at her. Silver put her hands up slowly, her confident demeanor white from her face. Kafka nervously watched them talk for a moment until the largest asterisk laughed and raised his rifle to her forehead. Seeing that, Kafka couldn't take it anymore. He didn't know what came over him, but he steeled both wings and bolted out of the escape pod, ignoring his fellow crew members' cries of protest. I have to do something. I can't let the captain die, Kafka thought to himself as he skittered down the ship's maze of hallways as fast as he could. It was only when he reached the cargo bay's internal airlock that he remembered that he had no plan. Left with few options, he crouched down and opened the airlock crack peeking inside. Could you at least leave me two crates, so that I can tell my boss I fought valiantly to defend the goods and barely shook you off, said Silver, who still had a gun to her head. The ashtracks before her lowered his gun and threw back his snouted laughter. Kafka winced when he saw the rows of sharp teeth that lined his mouth. The swad's got guts, I like her, said the ashtracks between breaths. He motioned to the two other pirates who were busy attaching hover pads to the crates and loading them onto the ship. Hey, leave this girl two crates. She'll need them once we cut off her power and air. The band of pirates couldn't help chuckle to themselves, but Kafka couldn't suppress his displeasure wing any longer. He jumped as he heard the wall beep beside him, and could only turn in horror as he saw his wing repeatedly striking the airlock control panel. With a sudden mechanical whir, the airlock Kafka was hiding behind opened. The asterisk captain reflexively fired a single shot at the door, 
and it took everything Kafka had to pull his head back before the energy beam struck the floor where he had been standing just a moment ago. No, no, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Crew Member, said the Asterix captain in a gravelly voice. I really don't mean to fire at you, but uh, I'm just surprised, you see. Kafka wasn't fooled by the obvious malice in his voice. Now, um, if you would walk out here all nice and slow, I'll give your captain a chance to explain why you're sneaking around when she told us all the crew had left in the pond. Despite his fear, he still refused to abandon his captain. So he walked into the emergency bay slowly. He winced when he saw Silver's glare upon him. Now that was nice and easy, wasn't it? The pirate captain was cut off by Silver, who spoke with an almost robotic calmness. Kafka, what did I tell you before? He began to melt under her reproachful gaze, but nonetheless mustered up all the courage that he could to reply. To, 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 go, to go to the airlock? He said with a squeak. Silver shook her head. No! I distinctly remember telling you to arm the detonator charges on the ship's engines before coming to cause a distraction. Did you do either of those things? At that, the pirates began to whisper nervously among themselves. Hey, what do you mean? The Asterix captain's surprised exclamation was cut off again. I know you didn't get it done, Kafka. I'll cover you, so go do your damn job. Without so much as a word of warning, Silver grabbed the captain's arm and twisted it as she lunged towards him, bolting him around her shoulders in a show of strength uncharacteristic of a small body. Without losing momentum, she rolled backwards behind one of the cargo containers suspended by hover pads, pulling out a minuscule pistol from underneath it. Kafka could only stare slack-mandible at her for a few moments before coming to his senses and running for his life. Several laser blasts followed him, but none of them landed on their mark. On the detonators? What could you mean? Kafka couldn't comprehend Silver's instructions. However, as he neared the engine room, he once again recalled the instructions his captain had given him on the first day on the ship. First, you run to the escape pod. Second, ignore anything I tell you to do during the emergency. She had said. He had stood frozen, agonizing over the realization that Silver had told him to leave so that he could escape with the rest of the crew without giving the pirates a chance to know about the escape pod, which was probably still docked at the ship. Not only that, but she wittingly started a fight with the most dangerous species in the galaxy to give him a chance to escape. He felt a myriad of emotions well up inside of him, but he shook them off, determined not to let her sacrifice go in vain. Without a second thought, he took off towards the escape pod. The rest of the crew shot him angry looks as he climbed back inside the cramped pod. Only Boov expressed any worry. Kafka, are you all right? He asked with only a hint of anger. Kafka could only shrink down in his seat further. The entire crew remained silent as they took off, switching the monitor's feed to the pod's external camera. Kafka felt like he could sense the crew's animosity towards him. If he had just stayed put, Silver would probably could have talked a way out of it. I killed her, he whispered to himself, shivering at the realization. At that moment, any hope Kafka may have had left for Silver was vaporized along with the ship that he had just escaped from. Silver's freight cruiser exploded in a massive inferno, taking the pirate ships with it. 
crew remained dead silent as they saw a blaze consume both ships, as if to crown the dark, fiery Rhapsody before him. Kafka witnessed the main engine drift away just before the charred husk of the ship's subspace drive collapsed, ripping apart the wreckage into atoms. Kafka could only think dark thoughts as he sunk deeper into shame and sadness. It was several hours of tense silence before the escape pod landed at the Federation starbase. Kafka agonized for what felt like hours as he waited for the emergency responders to open the hatch. When it finally did open, Kafka saw a ghost. It was silver, unharmed aside from a few minor burns. She helped the crew out of the pod one by one, each of them exchanging a quiet word of celebration with her before leaving. Kafka could only stare in shock. Why so glum, Kafka? She asked with a smile when she had helped the last person leave. Captain, I... Kafka tried to speak. But it was cut short with his legs gave out and he hit the floor. Silver jumped into the escape pod to help him. As they left the pod, Kafka could only muster the strength and hoarsely ask, Why? Kafka's question was answered as soon as he left the pod. Crashed next to the landing pad was the ship's engine. Or at least, more remained of it. He could clearly see an airlock haphazardly hacked onto the side of the engine. It hung open at an odd angle exposing the former engine's hollow interior, which contained a single pilot seat and control terminal. Yeah, I know I told you it's not like the serials. Uh, what can I say? It seemed like a good contingency plan, said Silver, when she noticed him gawking at the horribly improvised escape craft. They stood in silence for a few seconds before Silver spoke again. Thanks for following orders, Kafka. You did good. Kafka's attention was suddenly torn away by a loud thud from behind him. He turned around to see Biv, who had just slid a crate of cargo out of the escape pod. The, the cargo? But, but I didn't see... Kafka stood slack-mandibled as realization after realization hit him. Silver had stored as much cargo as she could in the escape pod in perfect anticipation of an attack. That was why it was so cramped. The pod wasn't non-regulation, it was just filled to the brim. The sheer audacity of the plan boggled Kafka's mind. He could only watch in awe as Silver left him to help the rest of the crew retrieve the cargo, as if it were just another routine shipment. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 880. Meeting the Humans. Written by A.S. My name is Andal, from the Friend People. I have been entrusted with my peers to represent our relationship with humans. The humans call me a diplomat. Apparently, for us, this is a first contact situation, and they are doing their best to make us feel welcome to the universe, and not to uh, freak us out. I'm supposed to learn as much as possible from the humans, and about other sentient races out there, about the other worlds. We are a simple, peace-loving race. Our home, our planet, is warm and beautiful, but harsh, and my people are the same. We always had scanned resources, and only recently managed to build a spaceship capable of escaping the atmosphere of our home planet. The humans were waiting for us to make this step, before contacting us. I learned from the human diplomat, my counterpart, that they had been observing us for more than 50 years. 
He said to me that they couldn't wait to properly meet us, and that they had been preparing for this for such a long time. They even learned our language. They built translators for us, so that we could understand everyone else. As part of the first contact, I have been invited to visit their ship, and even travel with them on their ship to their homeworld, to Earth. They are willing, even eager, to share so much with us, and I found out inside myself and inside my people some hunger that we didn't know we had. A hunger for companionship, for knowledge, for traveling to the other stars. I learned that there were 56 sentient races that the humans had made contact with so far. But from all the other races, we the Prema are the most similar to them, both in general biology and in behavior. After meeting myself with some of their diplomats and other races, I had to agree with the human. I felt more comfortable, more uh, related to the humans. They feel like long-lost brothers. Of course, even if we are mostly similar, it is still obvious that we are different races and there are many things that set us apart. For instance, it is the strange way they talk, the way they express themselves even when using my own language. They bring expressions from their language, and even if I understand the words, the meaning, they still sound strange to me, and I find myself constantly asking for clarifications. And uh, this is the first thing I came to truly admire about them. They are like poets, every one of them. The simplicity of my language does not deter them. For them, the words always have more meaning than just the meaning in the dictionary. And with every expression they smilingly explain to me, I feel my mind growing. The human diplomat is ever so attentive around me, takes such care to use simple words and expressions, with clear meaning to avoid any confusion. It is very polite of him, but I honestly enjoy much more the carefree attitude and the language of the rest of the crew. It just feels more free and more honest. By the way, another human expression I learned to use for some reason, even if I clearly stated the name of my people as the Prem, even if the diplomats always refer to us correctly, the rest of the crew calls us the Fremen. I asked John, one of the crew members that is assigned to a company around the ship, why do you guys call us that? He said that long ago, when humanity was not capable of traveling between the stars, they dreamed and imagined the other planets, of other people in the universe. And someone, one of their dreamers, wrote some fiction books about a planet covered in golden sands, home to a people called the Fremen, coming from the words free man. And because my own planet was mostly covered in sandy deserts, and because we were calling ourselves Frim, John said it was virtually impossible for him to refer to us in any other way. Did I mention that humans love to exaggerate? At first, it felt strange. But after a while, I felt proud of the name. After all, it meant free man. It just sounded right. And the reaction you get when meeting a human for the first time and telling them that you are Fremen... It is, as the humans say, priceless. I swear you can see their eyes widening and starting to sparkle. Oh, 
Let me tell you about the one time that my eyes widened and started to sparkle. The trip to Earth took about a week. Then I spent another four days in orbit getting ready to go to planetside. Doing lots of medical tests, some vaccines, and everything needed for my safety and for the safety of the humans. I learned a lot about the humans during that time, and they about me. I dare say that I even made a lot of friends in the crew. On Earth, the schedule was busy meeting all sorts of leaders, scientists, media people. When it came too much, I requested for one more, uh, quiet day, to recuperate. John proposed to take me on a walk to see nature somewhere near the camp that we were stationed. Just me and him. And, of course, the security team that will make sure that our path is clear. But John assured me that he will not even see them. Of course, I agree. Looking forward to get out and feel the planet more hands-on. That evening, I had dinner in the mess hall with John. And he was preparing me for our hike, as he called it checking some things off on a list that he made. With things necessary for the trip, like boots, food, water, and so on. At some point, I noticed he stopped talking, and his eyes were fixed on something somewhere to my right. He was set a strange smile on his face. I followed his gaze and saw that he was looking at Mr. Naka, one of the medics. I also smiled and commented, So, uh... This is what sexual attraction looks like for humans, huh? I guess we're quite similar in that regard. John quickly lowered his gaze, blushing instantly. Shh, quiet dude, don't embarrass me. I just can't stop looking at her. She's breathtaking. I snorted, amused. You humans and your expressions, breathtaking. (laughs) As if the sight of a female can make you forget to breathe. I take back my remark about being similar in that regard. John's smile now grew wider. Oh, we'll see about that. Don't be so hasty to take that remark back. And even if I asked for clarification, John put on a mysterious face and refused to add more to that conversation. The next day, we went hiking. We drove a very short while and then we stopped near a forest at the base of a mountain. We started walking through the forest on a path that was winding up the mountain. The air was cool and refreshing, full of moisture. The trees were huge and lush, green with foliage, nothing like the few slanted trees from my home. It was truly beautiful, and I enjoyed every moment. About two hours later, I started to hear a strange continuous sound, like the sound of a shuttle engine, and we were getting closer and closer to it. I asked John what was making that sound. Oh, you'll see. You'll see, he said, smiling. A few minutes later, the path exited from the forest on a ridge and took a sharp right turn. As soon as I turned right, I see it. I see the source of the sound. It was incomprehensible to me. Water. Crystal clear water in quantities that I had never imagined was just uh, re-falling from a way higher ridge opposite from us. The water was smashing on the rocks below and then settled a bit lower in an enormous pool and after that in a steadily bubbling stream. Water vapors filled the entire valley and the yellow sun broke into several colors. Beautiful didn't even begin to describe it. 
It's called a waterfall, John said. And that's a, a rainbow. And under... I slowly turned, my eyes widening towards his, unable to utter a sound. Breathe, buddy. Don't forget to breathe. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 881 Story number two. Pint-sized devils. Written by Not-So-British-Brit. When we activated our distress beacon, what arrived was nothing like what we had expected. When the Kalkan Empire decided to invade our homeworld, they slaughtered men and women alike. They allowed their soldiers to assault and torture our children, and did whatever they desired. We couldn't fight back. Their ships not only outgunned us, but outnumbered us as well. Even our entire fleet protecting our planet, we stood no chance of surviving, let alone winning. So we did what any desperate species would. We sent a message out into the void, hoping that there might be another species out there in the deep reaches of space. Whatever they would do couldn't be as bad as what has already happened to us. Something did find our message. It didn't say much. But what it did say was terrifying. We are coming. Its voice was deep and romantic. We had no way of telling what it was or what it was going to do. But we had hope. The ship that arrived was large enough to fit the entire Calcum fleet inside any one of its many hangars. At first, it just stayed there, exactly where it had walked to. The Galcom fleet had rained enough munitions into the massive ship to destroy a small moon. The ship's shields barely even flickered under the assault. But it was enough to get a reaction out of whatever was piloting the monstrosity. Thousands of small torpedoes made their way to the surface of our world. We thought that it was going to obliterate anything. But the torpedoes never exploded, and what came next was unheard of. The small torpedoes opened up. Tiny creatures no larger than a child left the torpedoes and unleashed an unholy assault upon the Empire. Their weapons didn't make the same electrical crackle as the Empire's energy weapons. Instead, they made a noise so powerful that it made the Kalkan forces cry out in pain, even without being near them. And the weapons themselves were things of the gods. Striking any and all foes. No armor nor shielding could stop their wrath. Their armor sharp and black, reminiscent of demons. The Kalkan stood no chance. Their ships fell like leaves in the autumn breeze. Their soldiers hunted and killed like animals. Once it was done, it was as if the Kalkan Empire never existed. The beings marched their way to the main bunker that housed the remaining world leaders. They were menacing, even while being the size of a small child. In unison, they began to remove their helmets. Only one thing went through our minds when we saw their faces. Adorable, yet um, terrifying. Their little faces were smooth and their hair looked so soft compared to other Millennium species. Yet, they were covered in Kalkan blood. It didn't seem right for such an adorable species to be so powerful.
but we were happy they were there. It had been sixteen Terran years since we joined the Terran Alliance, and we haven't regretted it for a minute. So, uh, before I go, uh, they are cute, but, uh, don't piss them off. End of story. Humans are weird. Written by Betty Adams. Human friend Mercy rotates with decision asked as she lifted her leading end out of the temporary tank the human in question had provided for her. What is it rotates? Human friend Mercy replied without turning her face away from the reflective surface of what was mounted on one wall. Wouldn't your meditative devotion be more effective if you had another mirror angled from your, uh, well, isn't your lagging end exactly, uh, I think you call it a supine surface, or perhaps a pair, or, or a trine of mirrors would be more effective. Perhaps humans cannot interpret an image scattered that far. Rolls a little your binocular vision should help with the... Human friend's mercy hand slowed in the soothing, repetitive motions, and the light show dimmed, allowing the peripheral sparks to dance more clearly. Her head slowly turned her face towards the undulate in the tank, revealing that she had sacrificed the bilateral symmetry of her face to get a proper visual sounding of the scene. It was, rotates with decision, had been led to believe a gesture of lack of understanding and mental effort to understand. See what, little girl? Human friend Mercy drawled out. I will ask again once you've completed what you're doing, rotates with decision said. Do you mind if I deliberately observe all of my appendages? Watch as much as you want, the human replied with a graceful, almost undulate dip of her shoulders. A shrug. Rotates with decision believed it was called one of the more normal movements the massive bipeds produced from their numerous joints. Rotates with decisions gave a hum of gratitude and spread her appendages to observe the brilliant light show. She wondered idly why none of her companions with more human experience had ever mentioned this marvel. The brush, a massive printed device that resembled the algae agitators she used back home in the growth pools, was gripped firmly in the human's dominant hand, while she used her non-dominant hand to direct the fall of the thread-thin fibers that grew out of the cattle end. The human had begun the meditative devotion by freeing the thousands of strands from the cloth band that had restrained them, and now the band clung snugly to one of the larger joints in her arm. Then she had started using the teeth of the brush at the lagging end of the fibers to tease out the tangles exactly as one had to loosen the more fibrous algae back home. The moment the printed material of brush had touched the fibers, a slow of brilliant sparks had erupted from the contact. As human friend Mercy had worked the brush up the length of her fibers and showers of sparks had grown in number and density, until the flowing mass of fibers was a veritable cascade of dancing light. When all tangles were worked out of the fibers, the human had worked up a steady rhythm that filled the room with a sparkling light. The beauty, the light, the rhythm, the softly chanted tune that rotates with decision couldn't quite make out. Everything about this wondrous scene before her spoke of a religious devotion. Even if rotates with decision hadn't had the chance to see the ancient human religious art in display, she would have recognized the holiness of that moment. 
as it was the tradition of putting a circle representing light around the head of humans in religious devotion, suddenly made so much more sense. Rotates with decisions suddenly realized that the chanting was actually a deck of marked counting form that the humans used. Human friend Mercy was counting up by one and was somewhere in the mid-sixties. Rotates with decisions wondered which human prayers had that many beats. She had been somewhat under the impression that nightly prayers were usually shorter. She wondered suddenly if it had been rude to interrupt the prayer. Humans were oddly solitary creatures sometimes. True, human friend Mercy hadn't appeared to be offended, but the human was probably too agreeable to express such a thing even if it was an inconvenient time. The pace of the prayer was picking up in anticipation of the end count, and human friend Mercy was briskly dragging the brush through the full length of the strands, catching the mass of her non-dominant hand and guiding the mess through the tines of the brush. The resulting light show almost obscured the dancing fibers in its glow. Human friend Mercy reached a count of 100 and finished with a powerful stroke that made the room glow. Rather than bask in the accumulated light, she parted the sparkling strands down the center of a caudal end and began quickly braiding the two halves into the side braids that she explained were the most comfortable for sleep. Showers of spark, showers of sparks fell from her fingers and lit her on the shoulders before extinguishing in the ambient vapor. The human finished the task and dropped the brush on the shelf before giving a little hop and landing on her bunk. What was the question you asked, Rotates? Human friend Mercy asked as she shifted in a usual human search for comfortable position. Primarily, I wanted to know why you have not arranged for a view of your, uh, dorsal, I believe. Surface during prayer time, rotates with decision said. Human friend Mercy stopped shifting with her pillow clutched in her hands and stared at rotates with decision, with a fracturing gaze that indicated deep thought. What prayer now? Human friend Mercy asked with confusion clear in her tones. The counting prayer that you just performed at the mirror, rotates with decision said, gesturing towards the reflective surface. That wasn't a religious thing. Friend Mercy said slowly. It was a hygiene thing. It distributes the oils properly through my hair so that the oils produced at the base of the strands can reach all the way to the tips. It also prevents insects from nesting in the braids and dislodges any dirt. I count to make sure that I've got sufficient time to the task. Rotates with decision positively wriggled in surprise. Such astounding beauty produced from a merely hygienic process she exclaimed. How delightful! But surely, even so, you would want to view a full effect of the light flow. The what now? Human friend Mercy said, but that was interrupted by a yawn. I can ask you about it in the morning, rotates with decision said as she slipped back into the tank. Good idea, human friend Mercy said, and she shifted position to begin to sleep. However, after a moment, her arm lifted to her side and dropped across a caudal end and reposed that usually indicated thoughtfulness rather than restfulness. Yo, rotates, human friend Mercy called out with another yawn. I think I got it. Mine and my sisters would sometimes brush our hair in the dark to see the sparks it made. I bet you can see them even without being in pitch black. The human voice had wandered off into sleep and her arm dropped to her side, so rotates with decision did not bother pausing the matter.
There was always tomorrow. She stared at the lingering glow in the braids that fall over the human shoulders in fascination. Was it possible that a species could produce such beauty without realizing it? Then of story. Tales from Outer Space 882. Pretty Little Death Wilders. An audience with the War Queen. What the hell? 567B92 raised a paw and waved a head to her communications bank over to her desk. Back, Commander, look at this. She pointed out a strange blips on her screen. Her back commander squinted at them in disbelief. That's a communication from an alien ship using L codes. Now, there's something you don't see every day. What are they saying? Just a moment. 567B92 put her headphones back in place and listened. They say they're the crew of a ship that was captured by the League and they've, uh, escaped captivity. Stolen a ship. It, it sounds like they need picking up. What the hell? That's what I just said. At first, everybody who'd heard about the escapees had believed it to be some kind of trick or hoax. After all, captured by alien enemies tended to result in the gruesome deaths of the prisoners, who chose a violent but noble end over being tortured for information or whatever else was in store. This was probably why a full-sized battleship was sent to pick them up. Then the battleship got close enough for video, and the distinctly last face of Pack Commander Cal appeared on the comms screen. The story, as the former crew of the insert name here explained, was that they had been held prisoner and interrogated for many short cycles, only to find their way to a stellar league ship and escape. Amazingly, they weren't even badly injured. A couple broken bones, several patches of blaster, scorched fur, and a bunch of small injuries from something their captors apparently referred to as barbed wire. Even more amazingly was the hero of the story. Usually this title would go to one of the top warriors of the pack, or even the pack commander. While they certainly deserved respect and honor for their courage and cunning, the real hero was a lowly ship technician. 099-827. Big Nines! He had apparently used his interrogation session against his captors to make them lower their guards and to gain a fascinating insights into their mindsets. For instance, he said to one baffled archivist, they put a lot of stock in making their ships and bases look extremely aesthetically pleasing. I suspect it's because they're hardly at war, so they have a lot of time to do these things like that. Hardly ever at war. The crew of the insert name here were escorted back to the craft immediately and welcomed aboard as brave survivors that they were. Their stolen ship was docked and set upon by technicians eager to learn about their foes. Medical staff examined the survivors and declared them to be remarkably healthy, given their situation. I suppose the League aren't very good at torture, one of the medics surmised after giving Lucky Ears a clean bill of health. That's uh, the weird part. They didn't torture us, they just asked a lot of really annoying questions. Excuse me? There was an instant media friendly. Though the last didn't exactly have much in the way of a free press, they did have the need to transmit important information around the craft in a digestible way. To that end, they had the equivalent of a state news network. 
the network broadcast images of the survivors to every crumb screen in the craft. The host discussed the possibility of new names, numbers, ranks, and honors for the brave crew of the insert name here, and especially for 099-827. It was utterly sensational. Even more sensational were the claims made by the crew themselves. No torture, the captors caring for them on principle, no real attempts at any kind of brainwashing. More Queen Baya Marani watched these reports with interest. She drummed her claw tips on the council table. No other members of the council dared speak before she did. It took a while for her to speak, even when the comm screen was turned off. I want to speak to 099827, she said at last. Now! A personal, private audience with the War Queen was something that most last could only dream of. It was reserved for those that achieved something truly incredible. All those with information considered absolutely paramount to the ongoing war effort. Hermes was a rare individual who met both of these criteria at once. Pack Commander Cull's plan had worked perfectly. He was going to talk with the War Queen. He was utterly terrified. Don't be, he thought to himself, adjusting his stress uniform as he was escorted down the labyrinthian tunnels to the craft at the central control sector. The War Queen is a smart woman. She wants what's best for our people. She'll listen to reason. Surely, surely... It was not very convincing. Eventually, Hermes and his escort reached the imposing vault-like doors to the War Queen's chambers. Armed guards stood at attention, not taking the rise of the War Queen's guest for an instant. Hermes had never been given such a thorough security check in his life. Even the League hadn't been so intent on making sure he couldn't bring a weapon into a meeting. The all-clear was given and the guard entered a six-digit code into the panel by the door, and the vault slid open. Beyond was a large hall, decorated with blown-out photographs of past warlords. In the middle of the room was a fancy-looking metal table. Hermes entered nervously, nearly jumping out of his skin at the sound of the vault door closing behind him. He cautiously made his way over to the table, his training made him visually check the entire room for vents, passageways, anything that he could be tactically used. Not that he'd need to. He wasn't about to talk to an enemy. Speaking of which, a door at the other end of the hallway swung open. A war queen Pia Marani walked in. She was exactly as imposing as Hermes had expected. The War Queen was clad in ceremonial armor that was as striking as it was protective, though she had forgotten her helmet for the purpose of the meeting. A blast missile was holstered on her hip. She had two blasters holstered on a lower part of her chest plate and one on each side. Not that she would need them in most circumstances. Her claws were the longest and sharpest that Hermes had ever seen. He remembered the story he'd heard of how she became a war queen by slaying the previous walking in personal combat. Hermes bowed and showed his hand submissively. Marani bowed back politely. Technician 099827, I presume. Yes, my war queen. It is an honor to meet you. 
Likewise. Come on, sit down. We have a lot to discuss. Hermes took his place at the table. Marani sat across from him. She was a hard one to read. The large amounts of scar tissue on her face didn't help. She poured two glasses of water and handed one to Hermes. He sniffed it, as was custom, then took a sip. So, Marani said after her own sip, First of all, I'd like to say how impressed I am that you're not only alive, but relatively unharmed. Thank you, though I don't think that's quite as impressive as it seems. He felt a bit embarrassed admitting it, but there was no sense in lying to her. My captivity was really not what I expected. Oh, her eyes narrowed. Yes, I read the reports. How do I put this? It's not that I think that you and your crew are liars by any means, but your stories are just so unbelievable. I know, but they're true. He took a deep breath. War Queen, the things I saw and experienced while I was a prisoner on the Stellar League have made me question many things that I've always held to be empirical truths. They did not kill. They did not torture or enslave us. They fed us, sheltered us with no request or anything in return. They gave us medical care. It baffled me, so I decided to try and get answers directly. The War Queen's ears twitched in agreement. It was the logical thing to do. She motioned for him to continue as she sipped her drink. I, um, I ended up talking with a human interrogator named Art Edwards, he continued. Edwards told me many interesting things. They told me that, uh, while the lost are loathed and hated by many in the League, they do not unanimously desire our destruction. Really? Marani's tone was drenched in skepticism. Apparently, they just want us to stop killing them. If we don't hurt them, then they won't hurt us, so to speak. I see... The two sat in silence for some time as Marani pondered Hermes' words. I find that incredibly hard to believe, she said. I'm sorry, but it sounds like a trick. I have to approach these things with a great deal of suspicion for the sake of our people. And I truly respect you for that, but, um, I... Hermes felt his heart rate pick up even further. He was about to say something borderline blasphemous. More queen... I don't think it's impossible for alien races to genuinely cooperate. I've seen the dignity that they extended to the other alien foes, and witnessed their cooperation in battle. Even when boarding our ship, I don't think it's necessary for us to be lost in the galaxy to survive. Marani nearly dropped her glass. She stared at Hermes like George Shock. Then she shut her jaw firmly, lips curling slightly, her ears pressed backwards. Hermes felt the instinct to run bubbling up at his chest. Marani took a deep, steadying breath. Her ears flicked backwards and she purred comfortingly. Oh, technician, it's okay. I understand. You, uh, you do? Of course, even the mightiest of our warriors can suffer from severe trauma as a result of close encounters with the enemy. Your mind has adapted to survive confinement by detestable, hateful aliens. It's okay. I won't hold these words against you. Huh. But, um, nothing happened to traumatize me. Or any of us. I told you. 
we were treated well. I have a higher tier qualification in military psychology. You're probably suffering from repressed memories, but that's something a therapist to handle. Your courage is admirable all the same. Hermes racked his brain, trying to work out what she had said, and even the slightest bit of grounding in reality. Had he been tortured and not remembered it? No, he had no injuries from torture. Every medic he'd spoken to since rescue had confirmed that. The same held true for all of his comrades. With all due respect, War Queen, you're wrong. I know what I've seen and felt. Are you sure about that? Her tone was as cold as ice, but her sweet expression did not change. If you entirely in your right mind, then that means that you are consciously proclaiming something that could bring down our entire civilization. Again, are you sure? Yes, I'm sorry, my war queen, but I can't allow billions of lives to be lost when there's a chance at an alternative. Marani finished a drink and set it neatly on the table between them. Then you are putting aliens above the last. I'm putting them equal to us. No more, no less. A horrible, horrible thought occurred to Hermes. He'd been assuming up to this point that the idea of aliens really being people was something as new to the War Queen as it was to him. But what if it wasn't? What if she, on some level, conscious of the fact that what they were doing was genocide of the highest scale. He tensed up, and once his image of her as a benevolent war queen fell away. She was dedicated to her people, yes. But at what cost? Was she a conscious overseer of mass murder, one of the greatest criminals in history? Or was she just incredibly set in her ways, blindingly leading billions of people to death and destruction because she couldn't comprehend a better way. Marani had stopped erring. That is treason of the highest kind, and that, I am afraid, means death. Please reconsider your words. If you were executed as a traitor, it would have an awful impact on your already traumatized packmates. The impulse to apologize, recant, and beg for forgiveness was almost overwhelming. But he couldn't. Hermish just couldn't. He also knew he couldn't win a fight with the War Queen unless he had one hell of an element of surprise and an unreasonable amount of luck. Dying for what you believed in was honorable, but living to protect billions or trillions of lives was arguably even more so. Hermes made his choice. He grabbed his glass and threw it in the War Queen's face. She easily dodged it, but it distracted her for a moment. That would have to be enough. Hermes stood and bolted for a concealed maintenance tunnel at the side of the room. The craft was absolutely riddled with these tunnels, and always had been. They were cramped enough that they had almost no tactical value to an attacker. But to a single last, fleeing an enraged foe, they would hopefully be a godsend. Alarms rang out behind him as he fled down the tunnel. He'd never been in this particular set of tunnels, but he knew that there was a grate that went from the sector's tunnels to the central comms, and from there he could probably... Well, he could do something. Maybe. He probably should have thought this through better. Second right, third left, up the slope and down through the crawl space attached to the side hallways between comms and central sector. 
It was hard to navigate over the pounding of his heart and the blaring of alarms. He'd be shot in sight without a doubt. Boots thump-thump-thumped on the floor above him as he crawled towards his goal. Any time they stopped, he froze. Had they heard his movements? After an eternity, the space opened up again. There was the great Hermes squeezed through it, panting as quietly as he could. Now, he was in comms maintenance tunnels, leaving them with set-off sensors by the door he exited. But for now, his exact location would be unknown. Thank goodness. He was out of breath. Hermes crept along the tunnel, ears twitching, eyes looking in every direction possible. He'd spent a lot of his training in these very tunnels, and he still knew them fairly well. What he was looking for was... Ah! There! The comms interface that was just down the tunnel from him. He padded over to it and opened it up. Using his own credentials probably would have not worked. Enough time had passed that they should have been blocked from the system by now. Fortunately, he knew a set that would probably work. Back Admiral Tal Kifkri 053682, whom Hermes had unfortunately had to help many times during his training. Kifkri always said his password to the same number, but incremented slightly. Let's see. It had been five and a half long cycles since the last time Hermes had helped him. So that means his password should be, um... Welcome back, Admiral! For the first time in his life, Hermes was grateful for the idiotic end users. From here, Hermes could see anything that the pack admiral would have access to, which was quite a bit. It also gave him sufficient privileges to send an emergency broadcast. Doing that would blow his cover immediately, and he would have to run. And then Kifkri would be forced to change his password to something far more secure, and Hermes would be out of luck. You lost him! Apologies, my war queen. It seems that he knows the maintenance tunnels rather better than I do. We're getting some assistance on that front as I speak. You had better. Morani settled back into a council chair. You are dismissed, back commander. The back commander of the guard squadron turned and left. Now only Morani and her council were in the rumor, having convened an emergency meeting when the wayward 099827 had bolted. Well, that was enlightening, she said after a minute. I have three important decrees to make, and they need to be carried out quickly and without question. Questions? They were the bane of any despot's existence. Sometimes the questions of whether her actions were truly moral kept her up at night. She'd mostly learnt to ignore that one. She was doing what was best for her people, as any ruler would. Now, a lowly technician had dared to voice that question out loud. The council were waiting for her decrees. Decree 1. Technician 099827 is to be killed on sight. Name or number for the person who does it. Decree 2. The crew of the insert name here are to be isolated immediately and guarded heavily. Tell the people that it's because they might have been exposed to dangerous alien pathogens. The truth is, they need to be interrogated and re-educated. They are compromised. Quiet muttering broke out at the stunning pair of decrees. Quiet! I'm not finished. Decree 3. We are changing the focus of the war against the Stellar League. 
From the very beginning, we have been wary of the ability of humanity to provide the League with an insight into the tactics of a Deathworlder predator. Now, the real threat is apparent. They are similar enough to us that they can fool our people into thinking that they too are people. And so, we must wipe them out immediately. Change our course for the human home system. Their home world is our new priority target. The alert that flashed up on the comm screen made Hermes' blood run cold. Military decree. Priority target shifted to human homeworld, designated Earth. All units prepare for combat in Yellow Star System. Estimated number of targets, 30 billion. Oh no. The human homeworld. The world that Art Edwards and his pack came from. 30 billion people. And it was a pretty big change to the craft's course too. Would the League figure it out in time? Well... There was a reason to break cover, if ever Hermes had heard one. As he typed the emergency message, he thought to his namesake, the God of Messengers. If you're real, he thought, please make sure that gets through. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 883 Off Meta, written by Blashed I hate this meta. Cal looked down at his world from the dust-colored ether that he inhabited. There was no way anything he made would compete with the system ladder, let alone the galactic ladder. Yeah, giant fish with teeth were cool, but they didn't win a space race. For the longest time, his fellow guards had been obsessed with the mag science strat. The idea went like this. Pour all of your resources in getting a race to space worthy in the shortest time possible. And that way, you can dominate the early game with a magic arsenal. While it had the lead to a rather action-packed first billion years or two, the resulting stagnant mid-game felt like torture rather than fun. Each species was eventually matched to no ground, well, space, had been taken or given in years. It would turn into an eventual galaxy-wide collapse, with the winner being the one who survived until the heat death of the universe. Cal had never been a trend follower and had decided on trying to make cool species rather than meta-viable contenders. It was only after his latest batch had been obliterated by another player's asteroid that he decided enough was enough and tried to late start a science-focused species. It was tearing the god apart, however. It felt so stale. You might be a dinosaur, Cal, said Ma, a friend but also fellow contender in the game. His species had hit FPL travel in the first billion years of play, and he now sat comfortable in the top 100 rank. Drop out while you still can. Carl turned his scrunched face to Ma. Well, neither of them really had faces, but he would have scowled if he had one. Just you wait, Carl said. I'm gonna make something so insanely busted, you'll have to drop out. Ma laughed and floated off his essences moving through the dust-colored landscape towards another player. Cal felt his mood sour as he stared back down at his world. Then, an idea formed. Slowly and sluggishly, it started to swirl around in his mind. A stupid, ridiculous idea that had no meritful basis for success. Cal's type of idea. 
Ma didn't necessarily enjoy the stage of the game, but he was good at it. The only game had been the best in his mind. His colonization space warfare tactics had been superior to most others and had landed him a comfortable spot in the Milky Way ladder. As with most, he had sacrificed dexterity, stamina, strength and fortitude in exchange for an extra early points into intelligence and magic. Intelligence was for jump-starting the space race and magic was for bending the rules. Supposedly, there were ways to obtain FTL travel as well as advanced weaponry by investing far enough into the physics skill tree, but it was considered a waste of time. Magic was weaker as a whole, but there was irrelevant. Anyone delving into physics would be too far behind the others and would succumb to magical space warfare. Magic was simply faster to obtain, so players would only go into physics tree for many space travel skills. All a species really needed to know from the physics tree was how to shoot things really high into their atmosphere. That game had been stressful rather than fun. Instead of colonization, it had turned into a cold war between top players with weaker players building forces and constantly raiding planets for resources and extra land. They would be swiftly beaten back, only for them to try it again, not even years later. None of the top players could do anything, though. If they so much as moved a toe into the weaker player's section, they would be dogpiled on by all other top players. A teeny, tiny hole would become a gaping maw in the defenses. So no one moved for thousands of millennia. Then, there were players like Hal who hadn't even achieved orbit in the last five billion years. He had spent too many resources diversifying species instead of specializing. Ma felt bad for him. They were friends after all, but Ma wanted to win this time. If Koss wins one more time, I might make myself material and blow my brains out. Ma lazily monitored his species' progress as they made reinforcements near the core of the galaxy in a system with several large planets. While direct control was possible, it was much easier to give loose guidelines to leaders and then focus on macro movements and evolution. His species ships, along with most others, focused on magical space combat with limited ground forces. Arcane shields, missiles, and everything in between were usually controlled by large groups of warlocks aboard each ship. Planets were only needed for emergency landings and to show who had the most control. As he looked down from his elevated plane of existence, a sudden disturbance caught his attention. Near his newly mobilized core fleet was a swirling storm of lights and energy. Bolts of purple and red whipped out of its edges. Mark could see his core fleet growing worried. This wasn't a magical warp gate. There were no symbols or arcane signatures appearing near it. The fleet began maneuvering to face the unknown threat. Time seemed to stop. Mar held his equivalent of god breath. Space warped and bent, and in the blink of an eye, thousands upon thousands of monstrous warships leapt into existence. Mar felt sick. How had he not known about this force? With a shaking consciousness, he checked the newly found species stats. Shock rocked his mind. The invaders had subpar intelligence stats, but what really shook him was the magic ability and survivability stats. There was little to no magic in the entire race, and the fortitude, strength, dexterity, and stamina were all miles above other species. How in the heavens did a race even obtain spaceflight? He felt a presence behind him. 
Gull hovered behind him. Oh, hi, Ma, Gull said. Did you do this? Ma whispered. You know that ape species I was working on around 300,000 years ago? Ma tried to remember, but blanked. He hadn't paid much attention to each of Carl's crazy ideas. Is uh, that the one with the fins? Ma asked. No, the furry-tailed ones. Ah. So, um, I was thinking, what makes the magic tree so overpowered? Ma felt his presence shiver with confusion. He knew why, but what did it have to do with the war fleet in his space? It gives early game power in exchange for durability. But durability doesn't matter if everyone is dead. Cal nodded. Precisely. But, um, what if everyone wasn't dead? Ma looked at him, stunned. What? Cal gave an equivalent of a smirk. Every time I had a species I thought it was neat, they would get wiped out by some player caused catastrophe. Not enough to obliterate the planet, mind you. They still wanted the victory points, but enough where it would wipe out my chances of playing. Ma couldn't tell where this was going. Did you steal someone else's work? No. But every time mass extinction happened, I was left with a tiny fraction of the population that survived. And since most players are stuck in a cold war, no one wanted to come over and mess with me if it meant cracking open their armor for someone else. And you know what happens if a species survives an extinction event? Ma was starting to catch on. They get a bonus to all physical attributes. You got it. And you know what that means. Ma felt his spirit drop. You don't even need to focus on magic. You just have to survive it. Gull was practically jumping through the dusk-colored landscape. Ma felt the pieces fall into place. And since they have increased durability, they can focus entirely on the physics tree, speeding up its progress. Ma's spirit sank lower and lower. Gull was practically singing with joy. And guess what magical defenses are weak against? Physical attacks. Ma was panicking. Its weakness was well-known fact. It was just that no one had ever made it very far with the physics build. A thought flashed through his mind and he felt a wave of relief return to him. Gal, my species has far greater intelligence. They'll simply outthink yours. He knew Gal wasn't well-versed in space warfare. In fact, he was banking on it. Oh, Ma, that's the best part. Space tactics don't matter, Gal cackled. Open fire on one of them and see. Ma whipped back around to stare down at his feet and send a direct command to attack the intruders. Billions upon billions of calculations happened instantaneously as his forces worked. Cruisers and heavy assault frigates wound into complex structures, their moves and plans calculated to the nth degree. Battles were fought in a single flashy move with each fleet trying to outmaneuver each other like a complex three-dimensional version of space chess. Ma was particularly fond of the maneuver phase. The enemy fleet remained still. That unnerved Ma. Ma commanded his fleet to fire. Glyphs and arcane signs blinked into existence across his ships, their circumferences dwarfing some of the cruisers themselves. Barrages of light and power began pouring from the fleet as all onboard mages focused on the destructive energy. Carl's ecstatic attitude remained even as his species was being pummeled by magic weaponry. Something was wrong. Ma checked the enemy fleet for damage and felt his heart sink again. Damage was minimal and not present at all. The smaller cruisers of Ma's fleet having taken more damage than the larger destroyer and assault class ships. 
Oh boy, here it comes. I was hoping they would bring it, Cal whispered. A massive gravitational flux began warping space behind Cal's fleet. In a blink of an eye, a new arrival warped into view. Ma stared in shock. Cal, what is that? Cal's excitement left him near speechless. An extinction glass vessel. Ma's ethereal stomach dropped. It was easily the size of a mid-tier planet, just elongated and boxier. There was even moon-sized world ships orbiting it. Ma could see his own fleet panic. They scrambled into formation. At the end was clear. A single MAC from the massive ship, its ammunition the size of a moon, fired, and in a large span of a heartbeat, Mal's core fleet was gone. Mal could do nothing but stare in shock. I didn't even direct them to make all of this. They were nearly wiped out by another player's species, and they mobilized themselves, Cal said. Mal continued to stare at his disintegrated fleet. It didn't matter that his fleet had been one of the most advanced magical constructs in the game. It hadn't mattered that he was one of the best species strategists around. It had been like trying to win a boxing match by sitting in the corner playing chess. Him and Cal weren't even in the same game anymore. Cal's species wasn't better at Mars' game. It was better at everything else. Cal's smugness was practically tangible as he drew closer to Ma. Welcome to the humanity meta, bitch. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this weekly roundup. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are links in the description, as well as the links to the original stories. So, if there was a story you liked, or an author, head over and show your support. And that's it for this week, and until next week, I hope that you have a fantastic one. And I will see you then. Cheers.